welcome everyone to the Real Atheology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and today I'm joined by my co-host, but also guest, Ben Watkins, along with, uh, we have Joe Schmidt of Majesty of Reason and philosopher Felipe Leon. And we're gonna have a discussion about Ben's recent debate with Catholic apologist Trent Horn, which occurred at the first annual Capturing Christianity Conference, which was a couple weeks ago. Now, Felipe, uh, you've been a guest on Real Atheology several times now, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell uh, our audience just a little bit about yourself and your interests? Sure. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Felipe Leon, and uh, I'm a professor at Philosophy of El Camino College in uh, Torrance, California. Um, my primary research interests are, of course, um, uh, one of them, of course, is philosophy of religion, um, but also in epistemology, especially uh, epistemology of modality. That is, how do we know what's possible or necessary and so forth? And that's a little bit of my background. Love it. And you have a, a blog, right? Yeah. Uh, exapologist, um, exapologist.blogspot.com. Um, if you want to visit that, I don't I haven't updated it lately as much as, as I should, but it's, uh, fall semester is in full swing. Uh, yeah. But I hope to get back to it shortly. And um, uh, yeah, and then I've, I've done some work in philosophy of religion. I co-authored a book with Joshua Rasmussen on um, the existence of God called Is um, God the Best Explanation of Things, a Dialogue. And then I've written some uh, papers and chapters in philosophy of religion on, for example, cosmological arguments and um, a priori knowledge and what's the best explanation of that, sort of the theistic or naturalistic view. Um, and then some stuff in uh, modal epistemology. Oh, man, that, that all just sounds amazing. Like everything you said, just I want to just go read it all right now. <laughs> uh, we'll... Uh, We'll put some links to those in the description um, for anybody who's interested in that. And then we have Joe, and we've actually had the pleasure of, well, a lot of the people of the Real Theology team have had the pleasure of kind of collaborating with you um, on some various projects, but I believe this is your first time on the podcast. So uh, welcome, and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited for this. Like you said, I'm Joe. Um, I have a YouTube channel called The Majesty of Reason. I also have a blog by the same name and uh, a book on Amazon by the same name. And I do both popular and scholarly level work in philosophy. So I just kind of covered all the, the popular side of things. And then also on the scholarly side of things, um, you know, writing papers and books and whatnot. And so I've, I mainly work in philosophy of religion and metaphysics. And in metaphysics in particular, I work on things like philosophy of time, persistence. Um, what is persistence? What is the metaphysics of persistence? What explains it? Why do things persist in existence? So, yeah, uh, and I've also got a, um, a, book, a book manuscript under review right now that touches on like everything that, not everything, but lots of things that were going on in the debate between uh, Ben and Trent. So, um, yeah, and that, that is called um, Existential Inertia and Classical Theistic Proofs. So um, it's, yeah, very, very relevant to this, so. Oh, I'm really excited. I'm any time frame as to when that might come out or you said it's no, under so, review. Yeah, it's under review right now. And that, that process takes a long while, especially for a book. So yeah, <laughs> I, okay. I can't even, I can't even give a, a rough estimate. All right. Well, so we'll have to just keep our eye out. Um, yeah. I've, I'm very impressed by how prolific you are. So uh, 
I, I love uh, all the work you're putting out as well. And we'll put some links um, in the description as well um, for people who are interested in that. So um, thanks. Thank you for um, introducing yourselves. Uh, so let's get into the review then. And first, I just wanted to express that I really thought that it was a very well done debate and it was productive. Um, I just really liked the posture of both Ben, you and, and Trent. Uh, Trent's a great guy. And even though I tend to have some issues with apologists, I really appreciate his um, intelligence and his posture. So um, kudos to uh, Trent as well. But Ben, you took this uh, high profile debate basically on pretty short notice. So how do you feel like it went, uh, Ben, um, on such short notice? Uh, so I th think that it went really, really well um, for even having been on short notice. So Trent and I actually exchanged kind of rough outlines of what our opening statements would be and then kind of settled on these sorts of arguments that we were going to use because we wanted to give um, uh, kind of what he called in his debate review clash between arguments, this idea of letting two worldviews really interact with each other, rather instead of trying to avoid blows from the other one or to try to score points on rhetoric, to really just let the arguments um, interact with each other and let evidential chips fall where they may, so that at the end of the day, it wasn't so much a debate, but more a discussion that people can look onto as a resource for you know years to come um, as a way of thinking about these deep questions of God's existence and, you know, how does something like a robust classical theism um, uh, square up when we look at evidential chips with something like metaphysical naturalism on the other side. And so I hope that both camps can take something away from uh, the finished product that we were able to put forward. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Joe, uh, we were kind of talking about this earlier, but you put out like, I think it was three hours uh, yeah. <laughs> video. And then I saw there was like a 54 page document, which I thought was wonderful. Um, kind of uh, looking at Trent's case and we'll, we'll kind of get into some of that. But before we do, what were just your general thoughts on the debate on how it went and everything? Yeah. So I, I mean, it's going to sound like uh, just repeating you guys, but I mean, it was extremely positive in my lights. I mean, both of, both of the debaters put forth serious intellectual cases they were extremely respectful. Um, just a lot of stuff that you look for in debates. So it's definitely so much better than, than lots of other debates that I've seen on similar topics. And both, both debaters, importantly, tried to understand the, the, the other side, right? So a lot of people might go into uh, a debate about classical theism just being familiar with other versions of, of theism and not being sufficiently adequately familiar with classical theism in particular. And so Ben kind of did his homework in that regard, which is good. And similarly, Trent did his homework with regard to Ben and Ben's, you know, moral views, ethical views, and, and so on. So uh, both of them are to be commended on that. And yeah, so th those are my overall thoughts. Excellent. And then obviously, Felipe, you're very um, much involved in philosophy of religion and kind of what were your thoughts on the debate uh, as a whole? Just what was your feelings about this as a debate? Yeah, my general thoughts about it are similar to Joe's. I thought it was, it was very respectful and, and civil. And I think that's extremely important in debate context, especially if you look at sort of the history of um, the, the semi-recent history of debates between quote unquote theists and quote unquote naturalists. Because mm -hmm. I, I put quote unquote, because there's so many ways you can find those things, but, but um, 
you know, back in the dinosaur ages when I was a kid, um, <laughs> like the, the uh, 80s and 90s in uh, early 2000s, it was usually this, you know, a fire-breathing atheist and, uh, you know, usually William Lane Craig yeah. <laughs> or somebody. And, and uh, uh, it, it was just sort of like a big turnoff <laughs> to yeah. uh, like, oh, I thought I was going to come here and see very careful um, a discussion. And often that didn't happen. People just got angry and stuff. And now, you know, we have people um, – uh, like Ben and Trent that are just very civil and cordial and uh, light indeed uh, uh, occurs <laughs> upon the upon the scene and, and are not not less heat. And then about generally about the structure of the debate was very very clear presentation of a sort of a Thomistic sort of a classical Thomistic defense of theism of classical theism and uh, a very nice evidential based uh, uh, case for naturalism on Ben's side, uh, uh, which I know we'll get get into in a minute um but i, I thought it was very uh, very well done uh um, and very clearly set up you know some the big issues to start exploring yeah excellent uh ben you kind of talked about this a little bit already but what, what would you say the primary purpose of this debate was because it's kind of hard to say that a debate in a lot of cases um i mean obviously they have their place but they're I don't know if you could say that a debate is primarily about convincing the other side so much um, just because of how limited it is. But what would you say the primary purpose of this debate was? So I think the primary purpose of the debate was to raise the level of discourse in um, something like the philosophy of religion. So yeah. um, really to kind of echo what's already been said, um, you know, these discussions can get very hostile. They can get um, yeah. um, heated often. And, you know, I've not always um, acted the way I wish I had in these sorts of com uh, conversations because it's very easy to get frustrated yeah. when you feel like you're not being heard or when you feel like you're being disrespected right. um, in certain ways. And so, but those have also been very good opportunities for me to grow. And it's something that I'm very appreciative of um, as far as the dialectical method goes. So, like, th this is one of the ways in which my primary aim was to give back in that yeah. to show that you can raise a level of discourse and that you can have these really meaningful and productive conversations between two people that disagree deeply, yeah. um, but both can grow from it. Yeah. And that, uh, that echoes what you were just saying, Felipe, just the, the nature of the debate is kind of very different now from, I guess, not even that long ago, there were the, the new atheists were very big and popular and it was more about sort of, yeah. Uh, dissing the other side, if you will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so um, good. Well, there was a lot that was put out, uh, um, a lot of deep stuff that was put out there. And it's really hard, obviously, in a debate like that, where you've got a very, very small window to get that all out there. Um, uh, so you didn't have a lot of time to unpack a lot of it. So that's kind of what we want to do here to, today. Uh, so let's go over some of these issues for further uh, examination. And so we'll just kind of start at the beginning, I'm thinking, um, and kind of go through uh, some of the points that Trent brought up. And then if we want to talk about uh, kind of your case as well, we can do that. But um, the first thing that we might talk about is just Trent's case is classical theism. And so he has a very particular view of God. So is there anything, uh, Ben, that you'd want to address about his view of God and versus like your view of God or anything like that? Uh, for sure. So one of the things that I wanted to try to make clear 
without taking up too much of my of uh, the precious time that you have in a debate was to distinguish um, the concepts that, that were on the table um, to distinguish between um, classical theism and what's often called theistic personalism, but how these are both models of God that fall within the family of views known as perfect being theism. And so I wanted to um, set out at the outset that I understood that Trent was making some, you know, assumptions about uh, the world and about God that were really important. So assumptions like God being unlimited being itself rather than being one being among other beings in the world. Like he's pure, you know, um, substance forming goodness. And so um, Trent worried, um, I think, about the intuitions that I brought from perfect being theism, thinking that I was, you know, thinking of God too much like an actual person where as I should be thinking of as something um, analogous to a person. And so like, I wanted to put out, put on the table at the start that I understood the concept of God that, that we were using and, you know, some of the implications for something like the doctrine of, an, of analogy and like how certain parts of classical theism don't cohere well together. So those were um, things that I wanted to emphasize about the, the model of God, uh, so to speak, that was on the table. Uh, now, Joe, you obviously do a lot with, you, you've studied classical theism uh, quite a bit. Uh, and I have to admit, um, I'm not as familiar with classical theism. I, I mean, I kind of am, my exposure to, um, and, and then just to kind of give a little bit of background. So I grew up in a Christian home um, and, and I grew up Protestant. Um, and a lot of my views on God, are, I, I'd say kind of mixed together. So I've had exposure to some classical theists, as well as um, kind of what Ben was talking about as far as perfect be being theism and, and some things. So I, I wouldn't say it's very well organized, my understanding there. But I've always kind of struggled with this idea of God um, only being understood in these analogous terms. So maybe you can kind of clarify some of these things. Like, So I'll just admit right now, I don't really know what it means to say that God is pure actuality. Like that almost sounds like gobbledygook to me and i know mm -hmm. it's obviously more sophisticated it's not so easily dismissed but maybe you can kind of clarify some of these ideas that classical theists have yeah yeah so the best way that i like to see the conceptual terrain is you have this core right so ben was talking about you have the core of kind of perfect being theism and so you have a bunch of um, well, depending on how you want to put it, you have a bunch of attributes, or we could say predicates satisfied by the being. Um, you have, but that's the kind of core attributes: the, the triomnes, so omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, necessarily existent, asse, um, the source of everything apart from itself, and so on. So that's the kind of core. And then it's it's when you add on claims to the core that you get divergence among different models of God. So classical theism has kind of four core theses that you add to that core of perfect being theism. And then various other views, <laughs> you can just see that my lights went off. I apologize. <laughs> I'll turn that, I'll turn that back on after I, after I finish this. No worries. But, but yeah, so the four theses are uh, firstly divine simplicity. So that's just saying God is not composed, whether metaphysically or physically and so on. All of God's 
attributes are such that they're numerically identical with one another and with God himself. Um, and there's a kind of formula for this, whatever is in God is God. And that's the is of identity. So there's not there's no portion of God that you can distinguish from God himself. So that's divine simplicity. Of course, you can get much more, you could flesh that more. Secondly, you have timelessness. So there's no succession in God's life. God exists outside of time. Uh, he doesn't go from one way to being another way or knowing one thing and then knowing another and so on. So yeah, he exists timelessly. He doesn't have any temporal location or extent or duration and no succession. And then the two, the, uh, the two next ones are impassibility and mutability. So impassibility just means that uh, God exists in this perfect, pure, undisturbable state of blessedness or bliss or happiness. So God can't like suffer. He can't have negative emotional states and so on. And secondly, God cannot be causally affected or influenced by anything. And then immutability, this is where you get to kind of pure actuality. So that the immutability, so typically under at least Aristotelian understandings of classical theism, the, where you have that kind of metaphysical backdrop of Aristotelianism, they understand change as the actualization of a potential. So potential is, um, it's, a way, it's a way of being, so it's not nothingness, it's a kind of being, but it's not full-blown actual being. So right now I'm sitting, but I could be standing. Uh, I could be walking. And so my walking is kind of being in potency. It can be, but actually is not. So once we have this distinction between act and potency, to say that God is purely actual is, for the most part now, you can talk more about that, but for the most part, it just means that um, God has no potential to change. So um, all of his features are essential to him, and he's indeed identical to them. So God can't change. He can't gain a feature or lose a feature. And moreover, God can't vary across worlds um, on God's end. Now, creation, of course, can vary across worlds, but, but on God's end, he doesn't. He has no potential for cross-world variance, and he also has no potential for change. And so that's the best and most intuitive way to think about pure actuality. It's basically God's immutability, both in terms of succession in the actual world and cross-world variance. So um, I hope that helps set the stage for the audience, and, uh, and I hope that uh, makes things more comprehensible. I know you asked about analogy. Um, I guess I could just say analogical predication is where you're predicating something not in the exact same sense, but also not in completely unrelated and distinct senses. So it's like there's a similarity. There's, there's a real similarity between the things that, that you're predicating. Like if I say that God is good and this cheeseburger is good and that I'm a good person, uh, those aren't completely unrelated, um, but they also aren't you know, univocal. They're not in the exact same sense. So analogy is just best thought of, and again, this is a rough and ready sketch, but it's just best thought of as um, some similarity but also some difference. So that's the easiest way I can do it. And so I know it's, I'll shut it's up now the middle ground between, so like there's these ideas in classical theism of saying things uh, uh, univocally and equivocally. Yeah. Um, and so this is the doctrine of analogy is kind of the middle ground between those two different ways of talking about our relationship to the divine. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good. There's there's a lot we could go on here. Um, now, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the ideas is that not only that God is pure actuality, but that He He's not just another being in existence. He is being itself. Is that correct? Um, so it sort of depends on uh, the classical theistic model. Uh, so there are a ver- ver- different versions of classical theism. Under Thomistic classical theism, yeah, they're going to say he is um, ipsum esse subsistens, which just means right. he is the pure act of being itself subsisting. Okay. Now, um, we can distinguish between like um, esse commune, which is the, the, the being that, you know, things in creation all share in common. So like you have being, I have being, 
um, you know, lots of different things have being, but God is not identical to that. Um, God is identical to his own act of existence. His own act of existence is identical to his essence and such that you can't draw any kind of um, metaphysical complexity there. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and you have to get into like what an act of existence is and so on. But it is important to note that um, uh, to say that God is being itself is not to say that like, you know, um, God is like this thing shared in common among everything that exists. That's not what they're saying. So good. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, quick question on, just to kind of elaborate on that. Now, do you think that this view of God is uh, ultimately coherent? Um, well, uh, it, it depends on the articulations. So like I said, there are different, like even within Thomism, you can articulate it um, slightly differently. And I think different articulations have different problems. Uh, sure. I think that there are problems with contingent knowledge, with intention, with abstract objects, and yeah. lots of other things. So I don't know if I would go so far as to say incoherent or something like that, but um, I would say that there are serious problems with it by my lights. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the things we can talk about uh, when we get to some of these things a little bit later, but this just came to my mind. So before I forget, because uh, God is taken as timeless, but he's also... Uh, sort of responsible for uh sustain he's a sustaining cause is that correct yeah and so, yeah definitely. and so i wonder if god is responsible for sustaining say an object at each moment of time in existence uh how does that not put god into time so he's because he's sustaining it at each moment so at each moment there's like a succession yeah for, for what they're going to want to say is the succession is entirely on the part of the creature and so on okay um on God's end, you just have this one absolutely simple necessary act. Mm -hmm. um, and then that act uh, is such that different things are dependent on it and come into being and pass away and so on. Uh, and the succession is entirely on the side of those things. And they come into being with a dependence relation on God and persist with a dependence relation on God. So it's not as though God is like performing one act and then on God's end, he's like, oh crap, I got to perform another act to mm -hmm. sustain them in being. No, um, God just has this one act by which he does absolutely everything. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, you can flesh it out differently. And this is actually one of the, the one big objection that different thinkers level to classical theism. Um, so yeah. Now, Felipe, do you have any thoughts on this idea of God? I, I think you were mentioning earlier that um, Thomism isn't necessarily something you focused a lot on. Is that correct? Or uh... Yeah, that's correct. When I got into philosophy in the late 80s, early 90s, um, in analytic, this is back when I was a Christian deist, um, I, there was a lot, a lot of focus in philosophy of religion, especially among, for example, the Society of Christian Philosophers. Um, the key focus was on an analysis, a conceptual analysis of the attributes of God, um, each one individually, and then taking collectively how they fit together. So, for example, you know, Eleanor Stump and Norman Kretzmann, you know, try to say how can we account for um, God's timelessness. Uh, and how does that fit with change in the world? And how can we use relativity theory, for example, to explain that sort of stuff? And, you know, Jonathan Quanvig and Thomas V. Morris and so forth focused on these attributes. And the, and the trend then was let's get away from Thomistic theism towards a more philosophically defensible conception of God. And so, you know, analytic philosophers of religion that were, you know, staunch conservative Christians even would just say, no, no, you know, I don't hold anything close to 
um, this sort of Thomistic classical theism, we can tinker with the attributes of God to make sure that they're consistent individually and jointly consistent and so forth to handle uh, certain sorts of issues. And so I came into analytic philosophy of religion when this sort of trend happened. And so th that's why I'm sort of out to sea on um, these Thomistic conceptions of God, which are coming back in. Um, so um, because of that, I see it more and more. I see uh, Joe's uh, writing a bunch of papers on that and now a book. Um, and Graham Oppie stepped into it uh, and so forth. Uh, I see that I have to look into that more carefully. But given that, you know, most analytic philosophers of religion still aren't convinced by going yeah. back to Thomistic classical theism, I'm not yet motivated. But now, as I said, people like Joe and Graham are, um, are taking it you know, looking at it much more carefully, it looks like it's time for me to revisit it. But a couple of things, just off the top of my head, this is somebody that hasn't extensively looked into Thomistic philosophy like Joe has. You know, off the top of my head, just sort of this concern about if God is just pure act, and uh, it, it looks like you're going to be for, it's going to be really hard to avoid the view that, um, you know, time is an illusion. Um, there's this paper written, I think, in late 90s, early 2000s by Garrett DeWeese. that's just called, If God is Timeless, Time is Tempsless. And he gives sort of little set theoretic proof that, look, if you, <laughs> he did his dissertation on this stuff. And he's like, look, if you accept this timeless view of God, you're stuck with the universe having a tenseless view of time. And the universe is something like a four-dimensional block. Um, which, hey, I'm totally cool with. I think, I think, <laughs> I, I can't, I, I kind of still can't believe that there are people that reject that view. Although now I know there's people in philosophy of physics that says, well, I don't know how to fit four dimensional block kind of view of the universe with special relativity theory. And so, um, you know, I hear there's problems there. But, but I mean, to me, that's just sort of the default you it just got to suck it up and accept it so <laughs> i think that's totally fine uh, you know that's a totally fine consequence for the the thomist and, and by the way i think that's totally fine for a naturalist right. uh, to accept as well so it's sort of like i think there's there's no differential support or disconfirmation when it comes to that sort of implication whether you're a theist or naturalist sure sure uh, excellent. Well, that kind of brings us to, um, well, Joe was bringing up uh, a couple of these points already, but that Trent, Trent basically is working from an Aristotelian metaphysics. And uh, Ben, you kind of wanted to address this idea that there's sort of a controversial assumption, assumption uh, going on in Trent's arguments. Um, uh, do, do you want to exp uh, expand on that? Um, yeah, so when Trent gave his argument from motion, um, there's two claims that he just kind of made pretty fast, but didn't really give any kind of further justification for. Yeah. And they were, they were assumptions um, like, you know, change is the actualization of a potential. So, like, he just kind of, you know, says that without giving any sort of defense. And, you know, he assumed things that, like, anything that is changing has a potential for its existence actualized by something else. And so, like, I, I mentioned existential inertia, um, something that Joe has written quite extensively on. 
to try to say, try to point out, you know, like, hey, there's an Aristotelian metaphysics here that I think our paradigm has shifted away from. Um, but I'm entertaining it and supposing it for tonight to have these interesting discussions, but I want to point out, you know, problems. So one was, you know, this idea of, you know, there needing to be a right now, right here, sustaining cause of something's existence. And then I also presented the quantifier shift fallacy, the idea that even if we accept that all per se chains of causation um, have an unactualized actualizer, it doesn't follow that there's just one unactualized actualizer. Uh, and so these were kind of strategic moves on my part, too, because it's, it's a debate. Every second is precious. And so, you know, I had to kind of put forward what I thought I could get the most bang for my buck, you know, the most body blows um, I could get for. And so I thought that these were two really, really powerful objections that um, I wanted to see how Trent responded to. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Uh, I think that the argument for motion you mentioned, that was a big one that he wanted to focus on. So, uh, and Joe, I know you addressed this in your uh, response. Uh, so do you Yeah, wanna... I've actually published, um, so I've published two papers in response to precisely the argument. So the argument that he used is um, a slightly simplified version of Phaser's Aristotelian proof presented in chapter one of Phaser's 2017 book, Five Proofs of God's Existence. Yeah. Uh, and so I've published in, uh, an article in International Journal for Philosophy of Religion on that. And I've also published a, a Sophia article on that, and then in my book manuscript, I have like seven or eight chapters, <laughs> just going through, <laughs> going through some of the background metaphysics, going through uh, existential inertia, going through uh, all of this, all all good goodies, goodies, lots of goodies. But um, yes. what, what were you going to ask? Sorry. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, well, we kind of got a lot there to go over. So um, now he made a comment in the debate. So I think here's where I'll ask you the question. Uh, we can start there since you're talking about existential inertia. One of his responses to Ben was that existential inertia is not well understood or well studied. And that I can tell is definitely something you disagree with. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so maybe you want to address that. Yeah, so um, yeah, this was this part of the debate was uh, quite frustrating to me, and I think it might be just due to constraint time constraints, right? I mean, sure. you can't really fault Trent. Uh, he had like five minutes for a second rebuttal or something. Right. So, you know, you have to go quick. Seven. Yeah. Oh, seven. You have to go. You have to say things without substantiating them, um, which is one of the drawbacks that I kind of wanted to bring out. Um, exactly. That you have to present a lot of material in a short amount of time, and sometimes that's not most conducive to fruitful dialogue. So that's one of my one of my downsides. But but going back to your question, so I I do think it's mistaken to say that it's not well studied. I mean there have been, um, I mean probably close to. I don't know. Well, it depends on what you mean by well studied, but there have been a number of several different papers published on it from several different perspectives. Um, and uh, I mean, I have this huge, like 60,000 word blog post, uh, So You Think You Understand Existential Inertia, where I go through like all the extant objections to it in the literature and I develop different metaphysical accounts of it. It's just to say that it's not well studied is firstly just. I mean, it, it, it doesn't even address Ben's point, right? Uh, so what? Um, but secondly, yeah, I think it's just false. Uh, there, there's tons of stuff on it and lots of stuff forthcoming as well, so. Right. Uh, yeah, I saw your document um, on that. Yeah, go ahead. By the way, yeah, I wanted to put in a, a plug for Joe's papers on this stuff. Um, they're really careful, carefully argued and very clear. And so I um, recommend those papers. 
Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Are they, um, uh, where can we find them? Um, so I have a fill papers. Uh, you can search or fill people profile. Um, mm -hmm. Basically just search up fill people, Joseph C. Schmid. You'll find it. Um, okay. Yeah. Good. And yeah. I mean, it's not fully updated because I've had like two or three papers accepted since or like that are still like in production right now. So um, yeah, th those should be coming out sometime soon as well. And Excellent. that'll update on the, the fill papers. Okay, yeah, we'll have to put a link to that as well um, in the description. So that sounds great. Now, Felipe, you work in the sort of philosophy of science as well. Is that correct? I don't have any publications in philosophy of science, but I am sort of developing as uh, hopefully developing as a researcher in philosophy of science, especially philosophy of physics. Right. Uh, but sort of a work in progress, but I don't have any publications in that area. Okay, yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on this existential inertia idea, just the idea of the persistence and uh, from like a more um, of a physics no, perspective? No, I mean, to the extent that, I mean, to the extent that I think there's a really strong burden of proof on anybody that's going to deny um, the conservation laws. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, um, to that extent, I think that there's existential inertia in the sense that people sort of any kind of quantity that you could think of related to the dynamical properties of physical system are going to be conserved. Um, and it seems presupposed in that, that, um, you know, quantities of matter are going to be preserved. Um, and so um, I guess I, I, I don't, I don't yet see any kind of, pressure from coming from a theistic perspective of why, for example, um, you know, some kind of ground of existential, um, uh, of, of moment by moment existence, sustaining an existence requires any sort of external cause, external in the sense that in the very broad sense, that's hostile to or incompatible with any kind of uh, naturalism. Yeah, I mean, I sorry to jump in, but I just wanted to say something like uh, on that. I've actually talked with many different theists, including classical theists, including professors of mine, like Jeff Brower, for instance, who many many who are interested in the doctrine of divine simplicity and who've researched that will certainly be aware um, of Jeff Brower's work. But um, you know, like I've talked to a lot of these people, and a lot of them just find these kinds of what I call persistence arguments, where um, you know something this kind of requirement for an extrinsic or external continuous sustaining cause, um, they find those, they don't find those plausible. They, they think, of course, of course, things would be inertially persistent um, under, say, uh, a naturalistic worldview. And even um, they kind of take it as a default. And they think the reason they go for divine sustenance is because they have other reasons for being theists and they already have God in their ontology. And so then they put God to work, as it were, right? They put God to work and doing some explanatory heavy lifting with respect to persistence and so on. Um, and also, you know, God is a perfect being and so everything else would uh, depend on him and so on. This is not to say all theists are like that, but um, I've talked with a, a number of them and they, they kind of express the same sentiment that, that Felipe is saying. They, like, they're like, well, of course things would like inertially persist. The only reason I I, I don't accept that is because I already have gone on my ontology. So. Interesting. Uh, Joe, would you, say, would you say that existential inertia is probably the best response to like the argument for motion and change? Is that, do you think that pretty much defeats that argument? Um, uh, well, I think there are lots of different responses that one could take. And really, I think it, it might just depend on one's metaphysical inclinations, to be honest. 
So Fair some nice. people might be more inclined to raise the existential ownership objection and find it plausible. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it'll vary by person. I mean, other another really strong objection that Ben was gesturing towards yep. earlier is that there is just so much metaphysical backdrop presupposed by this. Like right. the act potency analysis of change, for instance, requires what's called pluralism about being. And pluralism about being or ontological pluralism says that um, things exist in different ways, or at least there are different ways of being. We're not just talking about different properties. We're talking about different ways of being, different kinds of existence. And um, that is an extremely unpopular view in contemporary uh, metaphysics and so on. Um, most, most contemporary metaphysicians are ontological monists. There's only one way of existence, a single concept of existence um, that applies to everything. Uh, and so I actually had Trenton Merricks on my channel to discuss, um, for instance, one of his arguments against ontological pluralism. But my, my point is just that there's so much hidden beneath the surface here, yeah. um, so much metaphysical baggage going on um, that, I don't know, it's just kind of run roughshod over in these kinds of popular presentations. Like people don't realize that um, this massive debate is just being like steamrolled over <laughs> in this presentation in like five seconds by someone saying, change is the actualization of potential. Now let's move on to the next premise. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would certainly want to say that there's also the, the so one of the things I wanted to press um, in this debate as a strategic move too was the gap problem. Like we could accept the argument for motion in its entirety, and we still wouldn't have said anything about the moral properties of this being unless Trent put something like the privation view of evil on uh, the table. But we'll get. I know we'll get there. Those yeah. I, I I had objections. Uh, I tried to put as much pressure on that view as I could. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so before we move on from this one, then um, just real quick, Joe, I just I'm curious, what would you say is the best uh, challenge to the argument from motion? So you said there was a different ways people could approach it, to, uh, depending on their uh, sort of their views, but do you have a particular um, way of addressing it that you feel is the strongest? Yeah, so I mean, if I were in a debate, um, I would go after two things. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the analysis of change is the actualization potential. Mm -hmm. I'd go after that. And then I'd go after, I, I'd present existential inertia and I'd go through the different metaphysical accounts. Because I think that there are viable inertialist friendly, that is to say, um, yeah. inertialist friendly explanations of persistence. So um, explanations of persistence, not rendering persistence brute or inexplicable, but you can explain it in terms that are compatible with existential inertia. So I would level those two objections. I think those are probably uh, the most forceful, just going at after the metaphysical backdrop, firstly, and then secondly, um, existential inertia. But there are lots of other um, important ones. Actually, okay, a third one, sorry, I'm cheating. Yep. But, yeah, go uh, for it. <laughs> but I think that there is just a huge leap between unactualized actualizer and purely actual actualizer. Yeah. Um, I don't think the argument at all gets you to purely actual, no potentials whatsoever. Um, uh, instead, well, instead it only gets you if you grant all the other stuff to something that is in fact unactualized in respect of its existence. That could, for instance, be the neoclassical theistic God, which has potentials for cross-world variance or perhaps potentials over time, but it's still a necessary being. It's unactualized and it actualizes everything else. So I think that there are, those are the three biggest problems by my lights. Yeah, and you that last one you actually addressed uh, fairly extensively in your review yeah. and, and the document you put out. So uh, absolutely, yeah. What do you, what do you think of the, um, before we move on from the argument from change then, so we address the existential inertia. Uh, I know Trent in his response video uh, came back a little bit to the quantifier shift fallacy. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So um, 
I guess since we'll go with you, Joe, again, and then Felipe, maybe get your thoughts as well uh, on that. Yeah. So whether this fallacy is committed, I think depends on the the formulation of, of the argument. So, I mean, if you can give an independent argument for number one, the unactualized actualizer has to be purely actual. And number two, there can only in principle be one purely actual thing. Mm -hmm. Then yes, you will have solved the, um, the quantifier shift problem. So that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, we can get into those kinds of arguments if we want. I don't think they succeed either of those, but, um, but if you don't establish either of those, then it doesn't seem to me that you'll be able to circumvent uh, the problem. And because again, the argument is only saying that each per se chain of changes or actualizations is finite. And of course, from that, you only get that each one has a first member. Mm -hmm. You just, you simply can't get from that, that there is some one first member such that all the different per se chains in reality trace back to it. So you don't have an unactualized actualizer of, of everything else. You could have uh, a, a panoply of mundane unactualized actualizers. Mm -hmm. uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I think he attempted to explain or try to prove that there could only be one. Is that um, in, in, in the yeah. debate? Yeah. What do you think of that uh, argument he gave? Uh, uh, very, <laughs> I disagree with it very strongly. Um, so there are a number of different reasons that he gave, but um, one, one reason is that if there were two purely actual beings, one would have to have a feature that the other lacked, um, mm -hmm. right? If they're distinct, well then how, how could they be distinct if one of them didn't have a feature that the other lacked? So it's a kind of like identity of indiscernibles thing. Yeah. Um, now, for starters, lots of philosophers reject the identity of indiscernible, or sorry, the, uh, no, yeah, it is the identity of indiscernibles. Right. So right. lots of philosophers would just reject that principle. It's highly controversial. Um, but setting that aside, even if we granted that, um, the mere fact that one being has a feature that the other one lacks doesn't entail that the other one is even potentially having that feature. Um, right. I lack the feature of being made entirely of platinum, but I'm not even potentially made entirely of platinum. Right. So um, potency doesn't follow upon lacking. Uh, sure. And so that's one problem. Another problem is, is Trinitarianism. So um, that kind of identity of indiscernibles argument, um, it's perfectly general in scope. It applies to any X and Y that you want to focus on. Uh, if, yeah. So long as X and Y are distinct, you would need to have some kind of individuating feature that one has that the other lacks. And if that entails potency, well, then there's going to have to be potency between when you substitute X and Y for the Father and the Holy Spirit, say, in which case there's going to be potency in God. So, um, and again, for the audience who want to look into that further, I just advise uh, checking out my uh, sort of debate review, but also just my response to Trent's case. Uh, so, right. yeah. Right, right. Uh, Felipe, uh, any thoughts on the quantifier shift fallacy? Not, not anything other than what's been said in sort of uh, the secondary literature uh, from from decades ago, yeah. uh, including people like Galvin Planiga and stuff, uh, criticisms, I think, in God, Freedom, and Evil about that. But but so my knowledge is, is pretty rudimentary about that sort of thing. So I'm not the best guy, but just some general points. So for example, this idea of the God of theism being the unique candidate for, say, suppose you grant for the sake of argument, right? Arguendo that there must be some ground of being. I mean, it's not the only game in town. You know, Thomism isn't the only game in town. You could be a Spinozist, right? Spinozist thought that God's being, in essence, were identical. He thought, and so he gave an ontological argument, but his God seems to have more being than the Thomistic God. He has extension, right? And the, the Thomistic God is unextended. And so there's the, he, ha, he seems to have more being uh, and more attributes than the, the, the God of Thomism seems to be metaphysically truncated mm -hmm. because it has no extension. Whereas um, 
the spinozistic God is is both has both extended and unextended attributes as yeah. its essence, and it accesses every possibility, and so its creation seem it's it's uh, sort of it's uh, its creation seems to be much more extensive and in fact maximal. Um, which seems to be if if you're going if you're in the market, <laughs> if you're in the ontological market for a metaphysical package that explains, you know that is that sort of has this kind of maximality that the uh, the most real being that has, uh, uh, you know, pure actuality. I think a, a better a better uh, option in the market is some sort of Spinozistic view. If I can, um, but just can, the oh, sorry, go on. Oh, but just the deeper, just this deeper point, just a very general point is I didn't, I, I got the impression that, and by, by the way, Trent, Trent Horn did a very good job expressing his view and I hardly know anything about Thomism. Uh, so, uh, but I just wanted to say, like, it seemed like there was an assumption that a naturalist can't take any layer of concrete reality to be necessary. And I would just like to challenge that. Like, what is it about naturalism that says, um, you know, uh, say the, the metaphysical ground floor of concrete reality is a necessary being? That seems to be, I mean, I'm close to that view. <laughs> I think yeah. that's a pretty cool uh, intellectually satisfying view. Well, the universe has to exist. Yeah. Um, but, but, but anyway, that's all, all I wanted to say. About I, that. I, yeah, I wanted to piggyback off of what you were just saying there where um, – you know, Thomism, you were saying, is not the only game in town. Even if we grant all this stuff about, you know, even if there is a purely actual ground of being, I think that there are nat naturalist-friendly proposals that are entirely compatible with that. So I know, Felipe, for instance, that um, you are familiar with um, Alyssa Ney, Jill North, their work in um, atemporal yeah. wave-function monism and so on. Um, yeah. I am... Uh, I have slash am co-authoring slash co-authored um, a paper with our friend... Um, uh, well, I'm not sure if I don't have permission to share the name, but um, one of my philosopher physics friends, uh, and we're talking about the relationship between existential inertia and wave function monism. And it's really interesting. But under like some wave function monist views, the foundation of concrete reality is a timeless, non spatiotemporal, sui generis, universal wave function. This thing, if we take it to be necessary, and if it's timeless, it's going to be purely actual, essentially. Um, it's yes. not going to have. Uh, I mean, we can suppose that all of its features are essential to it and so on, so it doesn't even have uh, potency for cross-world variants. And so in that case, we have a purely actual, naturalistically acceptable being. have this timeless, non-spatiotemporal wave function that functionally realizes uh, time and all the other things in space-time and so on. Um, and so there are even naturalist-friendly proposals, I, I would argue, um, of a ground of being that is purely actual. Uh, now, of course, you know, you, we can get into the question of whether or not its essence is identical to existence. But again, here we're just talking about the argument for motion. We're just asking whether or not it has potency, okay? Um, so even if its essence is distinct from its existence, right now we're just focusing on whether it has potency. So yeah, I, I just wanted to piggyback off of what you said there, Felipe. Yeah, excellent points. I think we're uh, like-minded here. I think um, sort of, yeah, a big plug for listeners recent book, um, The World in the Wave Function. Um, nice. Excellent exposition and defense of the view that sort of the thing, the most fundamental concrete thing that exists is the universal wave function of quantum mechanics. Yeah. And all other phenomena uh, uh, sort of emerge from that. Yeah. Um, and it's just this, you know, 
every possible state of the universe, past, present, and future, is actual mm-hmm. in this universal wave function. Um, and it's purely actual. Right. And it's interesting. It's a it's a fascinating view. I put this in a footnote in, in my book with Josh, but I said, you know, I'm inclined to this sorts of view. And it's hard. It, it doesn't really fit in a, a sort of classically naturalist view, right? So so at the end of her book, listening, is like, well, you know, you could take this as a form of either idealism or monism, mm-hmm. right? Something, a very Eastern, sort of something akin to something in the Eastern religions is yeah. sort of, right. you know, individuals are sort of kind of like Spinozistic modes. Mo, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and so, you know, what is this thing? It doesn't exist in physical space. It's in configuration space, which cannot be reduced to physical space and time of the three dimensions plus time that we're used Joe to. Schmidt. So very, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so it's a very different thing entirely It's a um, than what we're used to in terms of, you know, sort of Newtonian atoms mm-hmm. in, you know, physical space as a container or something like that. It's a radically different view, but it's completely um, naturalism friendly. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that's an, a, an excellent example, Joe. Joe Schmidt just had an excellent um, episode with Dr. Eric Steinhardt on uh, what he calls an atheistic Platonism. And so he kind of refers to, yeah. you know, this this idea of the one and it had, you could definitely feel the, you know, Eastern um, influences on that view. He even mentioned specifically Buddhism. Yeah. And so, like, I'm seeing how, like, there's a lot of these monist views that kind of seem to be, I, my favorite metaphor from Parfit, climbing, you know, the same mountain from a different side. They all just kind of yeah. keep um, converging on this ontological monism. Mm-hmm. Have, have either of you... Uh, read or heard of at least the, uh, a book called The Nature of Contingency. Um, yeah, it's a great book by Alistair Wilson. Yes. Um, so this is because we were talking about David Lewis earlier. Um, I, I am, I'll admit, I'm very drawn to the idea of modal realism. But when I read this book, The Nature of Contingency, so it's about quantum physics as modal realism, um, something just really clicked there for me. Like, yeah, I'm not saying I full-on believe it because obviously there's a lot to unpack and uh ways that it needs to be supported but i really feel myself drawn to that as a very real possibility uh and as a as a as you kind of mentioned felipe a very satisfying view um so that's yeah i just wanted to bring that up so yeah and i mean if if, you know in quantum mechanics severating quantum mechanics seems to be the simplest theory with the widest scope but right. it's very natural. There's no extra bells and whistles that you'd have to accept with, say, Bohmian mechanics or GRW or something. Exactly. Other other interpretations of quantum mechanics, you just, you know... Um, Backwards causation. Yeah, exactly. So you just get... All you have is just the wave function and it decoheres and branches and all right. the other branching... Um, all the other branches, the decohering branches of reality are different parallel universes which is very nice as is, i think you know he calls uh alistair wilson calls it um everedian yes modal realism right yeah. and so right. for something to be a possible world is just to have it to occur in one branch to the wave function at least um, if it's necessary it occurs in every branch i mean that brings up difficult issues about blackbird's dilemma about advanced modalizing like 
is the is the um you know the the set of uh worlds is itself necessary or contingent you know right. um, but that's true of every account of uh, possible worlds so it's a problem for nobody i think right. but but uh yeah I, I find it satisfying i'm i'm with you by seeing you know the more time goes by the the more it makes sense to me and it's more intuitive to that um sort of a plenum of reality it it just seems way more intuitive and natural than saying there's a single universe. But if so, then issues about, uh, take a lot of spelling out, but issues about contingency and fine tuning and stuff seem to be um, very under motivated once you accept that sort of a picture. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's go to the next item then, um, which I think is one of my favorites uh, because, so I'm a mathematician. And so when he brought up um, causal finitism and then, of course, got into uh, Hilbert's hotel, I was like, okay, this is like something that's Look very how excited Joe is right yeah. now. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is also my, this is, yeah, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, so I was very motivated to look at this from a mathematical perspective, uh, just because that's my my forte. But um, uh, I kind of combined it, I called it the, uh, let's make sure I'm saying this right. Is it Bernadetti? Is that how you say it? Close, Bernadetti. Benardetti. Okay, thank you. Uh, Benardetti Hilbert Hotel. I really appreciated that he combined those two things together. I thought that was very nice of him. Uh, that was, I, I applaud Trent for that. Yes. Yeah. It, it, I thought that was super creative because I was like, you know, wow. Um, I didn't think about combining these two thought experiments, but it does fit into a nice little story that was like super creative. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely like that. So I've always been a big fan of Hilbert's Hotel. I think infinity is extremely interesting from a mathematical perspective and a philosophical perspective. Um, now, I'm not inclined to think that, um, I, I'm not necessarily opposed to the past being finite, but I'm not inclined to think that it's not possible. Um, but I'd like to get your guys' thoughts. Uh, so Joe, maybe we'll start with, um, well, actually, Ben, did you have anything you wanted to say about that that you didn't get to say, first of all, uh, regarding that? Uh, well, I'll just say that, so, like, I, you know, made something of a strategic um, move in not trying to unpack too much the nature of infinity and Cantorian sure. set theory in my seven-minute rebuttal. Um, because, one, nice. I just think it'd be very, it'd be very, very difficult for me um, I don't think the audience would have very much appreciated it. It was already technical enough. Sure. And so I just granted it yeah. uh, or I should say conceded it, supposed that the universe was finite and then asked the question, can, can we get to the God of classical theism from there? And so I just said that no, that we, that we can't, like even if we assume that the past um, is finite, we're still not going to get to, you know, um, perfect being theism, much less classical theism. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was kind of, so I used various ways of trying to um, cast doubt on the idea that um, there has to be this personal cause of the universe. I mentioned the argument from physical minds. Um, I mentioned the gap problem. I mentioned um, how, if you're committed to something like a doctrine of creation ex nihilo, um, God is going to change in relation to creation at the act of creation. And so that God wouldn't be timeless or um, immutable. And so, I mean, these are, you know, objections that, you know, people like William Lane Craig and Swinburne and Plantinga, you know, pose for 
this idea of classical theism. And so, you know, that's why God, you know, someone like Craig says that, you know, God enters time at the moment of creation. Like he's timeless before the act of creation, but at the moment of creation, um, he comes in time, you know, they're trying to solve that problem. And so I just wanted to throw these other problems out there and, and also to help reinforce you know, I, I gave an argument from simplicity saying that, you know, naturalism was simpler um, because classical theism has a coherence problem. The pieces don't seem to fit together well a priori. And this is kind of one of the ways that they don't really fit well together. Right. Excellent. Uh, so, Joe, I know you were kind of chomping at the bit there. Uh, <laughs> so you address this in your again your document but i want to give you a chance to kind of go over this especially since i can tell you're very excited uh which i am as well so yeah what are your thoughts on uh his his um hilbert hilbert hotel uh yeah style argument here um so yeah i will i will have to restrain myself because i don't want this to go for eight hours but i could <laughs> i could um I, that's a threat uh <laughs> but, but um yeah so let's see let me start with hilbert's hotel um, one thing to say at the start is just, um, well, this kind of points to the person-based nature of justification. I think whether or not someone is justified in something is a function of a whole host of factors that are individual-specific, like their priors, uh, the intuitions that they have, um, the mm -hmm. books that they've read, and the articles that they've read, and even the particular order, and the, their body of testimonial evidence, and so on. But um, for me, the argument from Hilbert's Hotel is just it's kind of dead on arrival because I don't share any any of the intuitions. I don't think it's absurd. I don't I don't even find it counterintuitive. Um, maybe that's because I was brainwashed into Cantorian set theory from the beginning, but uh, I don't know. I don't find it unintuitive. I think it's, of course, if you have an infinitely capacious hotel, of course, you could subtract infinitely many and have three left over. If you subtract in a different way, of course, you could have uh, uh, all the even numbers left over if you subtract out all the odd numbers. I don't find it at all unintuitive. And so I don't find it absurd or anything. Um, right. That's a that's a confession. So uh, sure. the argument is just I'm with dead you. on I'm with you. It's just dead on arrival for me. So, um, but but even setting that aside, um, I think that there are other problems. So I'll just articulate one, and then I'll be done for Hilbert's Hotel. Um, <laughs> so the first, it's just a, a problem with symmetrical future Hilbert's Hotel. So like Christianity, for instance, requires I like, that there's, I liked this argument by the way. Yeah, Christianity requires that there's an endless afterlife. So. Um, you might be in hell, you might be in heaven, you might be in purgatory, although that's kind of temporary. But um, anyway, there's an endless afterlife. Uh, you go on and on and on and on and on such that each day has a successor day. Um, and, you know, speaking lightly with days, we just need some kind of metrication of time. Um, and so, yeah, Christianity implies that there's an endless afterlife. But if that's the case, well, then you get all the same, quote unquote, absurd subtractions that you do with a beginningless past or even just a regular Hilbert's Hotel that exists in the present, right? Mm -hmm. um, we could have two angels uh, which alternate their praises to God uh, on each day of the endless future. So that's kind of like how many, how many praises are such that they will be sung? Infinitely many. Now we can ask on the head of a needle. Yeah, exactly. On the head of a needle. <laughs> yeah. But now we can ask, let's just suppose that um, uh, we move to a different world where um, one of the angels decided not to do it. So all the even numbered days are such that they have praises and all the odd numbered days, days are such that they don't have praises. Um, now we can ask how many praises are such that they will be sung infinitely many, despite the fact that we subtracted infinitely many going across these worlds. Um, but now suppose in a still further world that um, uh, not only did the first angel, you know, withdraw, um, but the second angel is also like, you know what, screw this, I'll do this for a week and then I'll be done. Um, <laughs> so he's just going to chill for the rest of eternity. 
So this this angel then would just be doing seven seven. Uh, we can ask how many of uh, praise events are such that they will occur. That answer is seven. The number is seven. And so we just subtracted infinitely many again, but we got a finite number. So like infinity minus infinity is infinite. Infinity minus infinity is finite. Oh, spooky. <laughs> it's absurd, uh, which means we get an impossibility, which means um, the, the, the future cannot be endless. Because if it were endless, all these sorts of different praises would be possible. Um, but per the Hilbert Hotel line of thinking, they aren't possible. Uh, and hence, the future cannot be endless. And hence, Christianity, because it implies that the future is in fact endless, and hence can be endless, it falls that Christianity is false. Um, and so, yeah, there are, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm off my high horse now, and I'll turn it over to you guys. No, I, I share your, um, I share that feeling with you that I don't find it at all uh, problematic, uh, especially coming from a mathematical perspective, um, at all, where I think his argument was more forceful. So on just the Hilbert's hotel side, I, I totally agree. I think it was, it's not something that, um, any, any naturalist, uh, or anybody should be really worried about but where I thought it was more forceful was when he brought in the paper passing part. Um, uh, what are your That's thoughts? That's from Coons, right? Robert Coons gives well, the paper passing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ju it's just it's a, a style of it's argument. a stylistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a stylistic variant of the Benedetti paradoxes that go back to Benedetti. And exactly. like Alex Malpass says, you might be able to find something like this in a pre-Socratic or something. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on that? Because uh, I could find I could see someone, uh, you know, listening to you saying, "Yeah, I mean, infinity. I could see would not. You know, the arithmetic of infinity would not be." Uh, the same as with finite numbers. So I have no problem with that. But I am having a trouble thinking about this uh, paper passing example or, you know, Bernadetti uh, style argument. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do we make sense of that, Joe? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be brief and then I'll turn it over to Felipe because I'm sure he also has some thoughts. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so what I'm, there are two, two objections that I'll raise here. Um, the first one is similarly with the endless future, okay? So, like, you know, maybe we could just grant Trent this, this stuff about, um, okay, the past can't be beginningless. Well, if your argument shows that, your Benedetti paradox shows that, well, then there's going to be an equally powerful Benedetti paradox that we can just um, stretch into the endless future direction. And the way that that goes is, um, right, so the original paradox is we have a beginningless series of infinitely many paper passers, and each of those paper passers follows a rule, right? This rule is write your number on the paper, so they're all given unique natural numbers, write your number on the paper if and only if no earlier reaper writes their number. Right. Once you get that specification, boom, you automatically get a contradiction. And uh, so that, yeah, that, that's the past oriented version, but you can equally construct a, a future oriented version so long as you sprinkle in a little bit of divine omniscience. Right. So um, all you need is uh, if the future is endless or if the future could be endless, well then on each day of the future, God could create an angel. Okay, so on each day of the future, God could create an angel. Or I guess I should have that modal operator out in front. It could be the case that on each day of the future, God creates an angel. Right. So, um, so just one angel each day, okay? And uh, so then if that's the case, well then uh, each of those could be given a unique natural number upon their creation. And they could also be given a paper and a pencil, okay? And let's suppose that each of them follows the following rule. Write your number on the paper if and only if no later paper, you know, uh, angel writes their number on the paper. And you get the exact same contradiction there. Mm -hmm. And now the question arises, well, hold on a second. 
how can these angels know the future, right? Because they're, they're, they're like writing the number based on what the, the future reapers do or the future paper passers do. Yeah. That's where divine omniscience comes in, right? If you have an infallibly omniscient being that knows the future, which is true on Trent's case, well, then God can simply reveal to each individual angel just what the whether or not it's only one proposition that God's revealing to these things, and God can obviously reveal things to people. So um, it, it, all God needs to do is reveal to each angel, once that angel is created and it's given its little paper and pencil and its number, all God needs to do is just reveal to them that uh, w- one statement, whether or not any future reaper writes or any future paper passer or angel writes their number. And then the angel acts on the basis of that. Once you have that, you get the contradiction. You can equally get the contradiction in that direction. Um, and so whatever I would say, whatever, however you respond to that future version in order to try to get around that, because if you're a Christian, you're like, oh, crap, well, the, the future yeah. can't be endless because um, you just got the Benedetti paradox as a result of assuming that the future could be endless. Um, once you get that, I, I would argue that any response you give to that would equally be a response to the, to the past oriented one. Um, right. So, right. I mean, you could you could just go open theism, but uh, – well, firstly, trends, that's incompatible with trends view. But secondly, um, you could just you could suppose that God is the one who is forming these intentions, and He is the one who's going to write a particular number on the on the paper, if and only if He doesn't do it in the future. And even under open theism, God knows His own intentions, and God sure. knows what He's going to do on each day of the future. Like that's at least possible. And so I think even open theism still has the problem. But anyway, um, I only gave one problem. Uh, I'll just turn it over to Felipe because I'm really curious to hear his thoughts. Yeah, uh, real quick before uh, Felipe talks, I just wanted to mention one other thing, because this is kind of what I found as I was investigating this thing is you, you had mentioned in your document that you thought the best objection was the, uh, I believe it's called the um, unsatisfiable pair diagnosis. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would definitely take that in response to him. Yeah. And that's, well. that's kind of what I found as well, a similar um, conclusion with that, with regards to that. So uh, great. Yeah. So Felipe, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that it's possible for uh, the um, past to be infinite? Um, what are your, what's your um, take on that? I'm actually agnostic about whether the past, if, if, if you can settle on a priori grounds that the sure. past is uh, infinite or finite. Yeah. Um, but I tend to think I'm lately my, my inclination is, is to say that um it's more problematic for the theist than the naturalist to say that the past is finite. So, um, you know, uh, several people have written on this, uh, most recently, probably Eric Wielenberg, but there's a problem with, with saying like, when did God create, right? Suppose the past is necessarily finite and these arguments say these a priori arguments prove necessarily there was an earliest moment of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so there's, there's, I mean, it takes a long time to untangle this, but, the, but the basic idea is, let me, let me just put it this way. Um, was God quiescent at the, you know, ontologically prior to the moment of creation, right? He wasn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was yeah. just this static, timeless blur or something. Yeah. Well, if, if he was, then he never could have created, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, because that would require some transition from a, a state of timelessness. On the other t- on the other hand, if he wasn't quiescent, but he was actively creating in that timeless, ontologically prior state, then the universe is eternal. And like, if it's like preparing if hell for moments is finite, then the universe is a four dimensional block. Yeah. So I think it's way more problematic for the the theists to take that sort of approach. They better hope. 
I think the past is infinite um, and God endures through an infinite number of moments of time. Um, at least at this current point in dialectical space, um, it looks bad for, for theism to say the universe had an absolute beginning. Yeah. Um, it's perfectly fine, of course, uh, just by, for example, the wave function realist picture we just sketched um, to say that the universe, uh, you know, that, the number of moments in the past is finite and ends in this time, you know, originates in this timeless state, uh, which in turn, you know, in that timeless state entails a four dimensional block universe. Cool. Right. Yeah. That's a totally cozy, intellectually cozy naturalist position. You know, just the universe is this timeless block. And so I, I tend to think just a piece of advice for theists. I may regret this later, but this is how things stand at this current moment of dialectical space. Fair, yeah. You better hope that the past is infinite because theism might be false. If it might entail the falsity of theism. Whereas, you know, a naturalist is going to be a happy, happy camper. Having said that, I myself am still an agnostic. <laughs> so I kind of am, I'm just sort of uh, watching on the sidelines as these things go out. Yeah. But, but I think that they, it's probably time to start rethinking whether we should do these, these arguments. One other thing, if, if I may say yeah. one more thing about these, these sort of um, Hilbert's hotel arguments, going back to that. Yeah. Um, this goes back to William Lane Craig, and it seemed to be involved in Trent's presentation. But there's an objection that just has been around uh, since at least 2002 with Wes Morriston, and then Oppie in 2006, and Draper 2008, that there's just a crucial um, ambiguity in the Hilbert's Hotel argument. Suppose we put it this way. Premise one, if concrete actual infinites are possible, then a library with an actually infinite number of books each labeled with a unique natural number is possible. Premise two, if a library with an actually infinite number of books, each labeled with a unique natural number is possible, then it would have, get ready, just as many even-numbered books as odd number, odd and even-numbered books combined, right? Yep. So just to remember that just as many, because that's where the ambiguity is. Mm -hmm. There couldn't be just as many even-numbered books as odd and even-numbered books combined. Therefore, concrete actual infinites are more impossible. That's one way of doing the argument, right? Right. And the problem is there's this ambiguity on the notion of just as many, just as many that Morriston, Oppie, and Draper have pointed out exactly. over and over again. So this is basically a two-decade-old criticism that's never, ever anywhere in the literature, unless it just came out, been addressed. Yeah. So on the one, it might mean that there are just as many even-numbered books and odd-even-numbered odd, numbered, odd and even numbered books together in the sense that the two sets of books can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. Exactly, yeah. True. So on that view, then while premise two is true, it's not clear that three is true, right? right. Um, for an actual infinite is standardly defined as a set that can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with one of its proper subsets. Yes, yeah. But, so, but presumably Craig's, you know, and anyone else who gives this argument is, is supposed to persuade those who, who aren't antecedently uh, true believers that an actual infinite is supposed to be uh, that way and yet remain at least agnostic as to whether actually infinite sets of things are metaphysically impossible. Um, so it seems though, it seems that nobody's going to accept that third premise unless you're already rejecting the possibility of actual infinites. But on the other hand, you might mean that there are just as many even-numbered books as odd and even-numbered books together in the sense that neither set of books has other members besides the ones they share in common. So this is kind of the part-whole sense mm -hmm. instead of the one-to-one -one correspondence sense. Then while on that, on that reading, while three is true, 
two is not. For of course, the set of odd and even numbers books um, has other books besides the set of books they have in common, the even numbered books. So the upshot is that the argument gets its intuitive appeal by equivocating on the notion of just as many and more and the cognitive notions of more than and less than. So, but once you disentangle those two readings, the argument loses its force. Right. Exactly. And same thing with those subtraction arguments. So if you said, what's infinity minus infinity? Well, it depends. That's too coarse grained. If you, if you subtract the evens, then there's an infinite number of odds left over, right? But if you subtract um, all, you know, all the numbers after three, then you subtract infinity minus infinity is three. Right. But the the reason why you get these different answers is because you're using coarse grained metrics. <laughs> so you you have to you have to have a finer grained metric to say, well, which sets? Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like saying, what's finite minus finite? Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Very I like that way of putting. Yes, I, so I like it's that. just sort of it to me. I don't want to say it I, is, because it's a public venue. I'll just say <laughs> a little bit more work needs to be done. Like I need you to explain to me better why this is supposed to be a problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I actually really like that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, finite. What's finite minus finite? Well, yeah. What What are we talking about here? Uh, yeah. 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 That's that's excellent. Um, very nice. Ben, did you want to say anything else about the causal finitism before we move on to your bread and butter, which is the moral argument? <laughs> um, well, so I would just say that I would lean towards kind of the infinite model of the universe. So I kind of think of these cosmological questions in the broader terms of why is there something rather than nothing? And I think kind of the obvious answer to this is, well, that there's always been something. Um, and so I think that if we're not going to take this infinite past view, then we have to admit that at some some point something popped into existence. So if we're naturalists, then we just you know think that the natural world just popped into existence. But even if we're theists, well, God popped it into existence, creation ex nihilo. Uh, Felipe Leone has a really great analogy that I just love. It's this idea of you know God creating out of nothing is sort of like supposing that, you know, with a sufficiently strong dry heave, I can throw up a lunch that I've skipped. Like it just doesn't like this. So yeah, this idea of an infinite past might seem counterintuitive, but what really seems counterintuitive is this creation ex nihilo or this idea of something just popping into existence. That's the, the intuition that, you know, I feel that intuition much more than I do anything about, the idea of an infinite series of past events. But I think I would also say, you know, at the end of the day, if really pressed, I'm agnostic on this. I'm very skeptical of ruling out a past infinite series of events a priori. I, I just think that project's kind of, you know, doomed. Yeah. That is a great analogy. uh, That's hilarious. Uh, (laughs) I I like that. Um, Good. So let's go to the moral argument then, because uh, Ben, this is where, you know, that's, this is like what you work on a lot is, is uh, moral philosophy. And I think when I was watching uh, Trent's review, he kind of mentioned wanting to bring up uh, a moral argument because he was trying to force the idea that, or at least communicate the idea that there are certain aspects of morality that naturalism does not seem to be able to account for. And the first one we have here is 
the idea of intrinsic value or human uh, equality. So uh, you were able to address a little bit of this uh, by being able to present your view, but is there anything more you want to elaborate on in terms of your view or maybe just the general naturalistic perspective and how it might be able to accommodate these concepts? Yeah, so the strategy that Trent put out there was that there are these features of morality, these basic features of morality that are somehow evidence for his form of theism instead of naturalism. And so, and he developed that in some uh, kind of surprising ways. He, um, I think his argument was that somehow my naturalism implies infanticide or, or something and that, you know, I couldn't, um, you know, because of my views on abortion or something, this counted against my naturalism somehow, or I, I, it was, it was very difficult for me to follow how abortion, so I consider the question of God's existence and the applied ethics question of abortion to just be separate. I don't think that either turns on the other, and so I kind of want, I didn't want to go too deep into abortion because it, it just felt like a red herring, that I was just, you know, I'll, I'll focus on the question of God's existence, and so what I wanted to say is that these basic moral features, like the intrinsic value of persons, um, moral wrongness itself, or something like special duties that we would have to other agents that we wouldn't have to things like moral patients, that these are all basic moral truths. So the idea is that they're true in all possible worlds. They're necessary truths. You can't, this is follows from the supervenience thesis, the idea that we can't have some change in moral properties without having change in non-moral properties. So moral properties necessarily supervene on non-moral properties. So the idea is in every possible world in which the Holocaust obtains, every world that has those same non-moral properties also has the moral property of being something morally atrocious. Um, And so these basic moral truths are necessary truths. With their necessary truths, they're true in every possible world. Neither hypothesis predicts them or the other. The probability of observing them is one. So it's not, uh, these aren't actually datums that can decide between our theories. So that was my, uh, uh, to, to me, I think that line of reasoning is just a rebutting defeater that just takes the moral argument just off the table. And, but I, and I characterized my moral view just to have it on the table because I think that's a very powerful thing in debates to really, just, again, to let our worldviews clash yeah. and to say, no, I'm defending a robust objectivist view of morality and I'm going to put pressure on his privation view of evil. Yeah, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. I, I think his attempt in bringing up abortion was, because he even mentioned that he wasn't trying to trap you, but that I think he was trying to get you to bite a bullet uh, that maybe would be you know, something that you would resist wanting to bite, um, that your view sort of in some way necessitates taking on these uh, very unpalatable moral positions that uh, theism doesn't have to, um, obviously doesn't have to uh, accept. Do you, do you think that he's correct in that, that you, a naturalist is forced into these like uh, unsavory positions, like possibly, yeah, maybe I do have to accept that infanticide is okay. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, so absolutely not. Um, so again, I just, I don't think that question of abortion is, um, you know, one that 
is going to help us much answer the question of does God exist or not. So I think that you could be a naturalist and be pro-life. I think that you could be a naturalist and be pro-choice. Mm -hmm. And so that um, I have views um, in applied ethics about the question of abortion, but I don't think my view implies, you know, this idea of infanticide where it would just be morally okay to electively, you know, kill newborn children. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just, I don't think that's a bullet that my view has to bite in that. But then again, you know, that's another discussion. Right. And so I really, I really wanted to keep everything focused on does God exist? Yeah. Um, because I don't want anything in my case to have to turn on defending a controversial view like, you know, the moral permissibility at certain stages of fetal development, sure. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Joe, I, I noticed you uh, sort of nodding in agreement. On, do you want, did you want to add anything in regards to Trent's moral yeah. argument? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I like, of course, just for the audience, I like to distinguish between moral ontological arguments and moral epistemic arguments. So moral ontological argument is asking about the ground or basis or explanation um, of, rea of, of moral reality, moral mm -hmm. facts and whatnot. Um, whereas a moral epistemic argument is just focused on our epistemic access to those. So I'm much more sympathetic with moral epistemic arg arguments, and I'm not at all sympathetic with moral ontological arguments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I just, I go into this a lot more in my video, but uh, what I would say is, um, well, I guess I could direct the audience to a nice paper by, I believe it's Chris Heathwood in, in the Journal um, of Ethics and Social Philosophy, and that is published in 2012, I think. It's called Could Morality Have a Source? Hmm. And it's, it's a really nice paper because um, I think Heathwood pretty, pretty forcefully shows that any view um, is going to have to have some kind of primitive or brute connections at the foundation. So primitive in the sense that um, it's just a primitive fact that you have some one thing or multiple things that ground certain moral truths. Um, and since that is itself a, a moral truth, you're just going to have to have um, some kind of primitive moral truth. He goes through, I mean, like even under like, say, um, a kind of divine nature theory, right? Um, well, what grounds the fact that God's nature is good? Or uh, what grounds the fact that right. God's nature is such as to generate these moral obligations or, or these moral truths instead of other ones? Um, right. Ultimately, you reach primitives and brutes on any view that you take whatsoever. Um, and so what I say is just cut out, um, well, I don't know, in my metaethical system, uh, I don't have God as a grounding at all. I think it's much more mundane facts. Um, the, the grounding of the impermissibility of breaking promises. I know we can get into like prima facie duties and so on, but like in general, it's the very nature of promise making or like the ground of my duty um, to intervene in a child who's drowning like right next to me and I can save the child at little to no cost. Um, what grounds that? Well, firstly, a fact about the victim and the facts about their suffering and so on, their intrinsic states. Secondly, um, facts about my powers. Uh, and thirdly, facts about the, the state of affairs, the situation that we're in. I think that's all you need to ground it. You don't need some kind of wholly extrinsic thing completely separate from the situation that either commanded something about it or has a nature which somehow specifies stuff about it. Um, to me, that seems utterly irrelevant. Uh, what, what seems relevant is the intrinsic facts of the situation and the intrinsic facts of the victim, my powers, and so on. That's what seems to me to generate the moral obligation and to ground the, the various um, uh, moral truths. And so to me, um, that just seems to be, and of course, I mean, it's just, it's primitive. If you ask like, what's the very nature? Oh, what is it about the nature of promise making that generates that? I mean, like I can ask the same thing about Trent's view. Uh, what is it about the nature of God that makes it such that promise making is, is good and the other ones are bad. So like, 
any view is going to have to reach a primitive. And I find, um, I find the view that I just sketched much more satisfying and um, simpler and much more intuitive. And, um, and you have an explanation, right? You have an explanation of morality, um, the grounding of morality. Um, yeah. Uh, just as a curious question, would you consider yourself a moral realist? Uh, yes, I am unapologetically and unabashedly uh, a moral realist. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Very nice. Uh, Felipe, what are your thoughts on this, the moral issues here? Um, I think, so I, I would recommend a couple of things uh, to read for, um, for the audience um, in case they haven't read it. There's a really good um, piece in the Rutledge Handbook of Metaethics by Tristan McPhee. Pearson and David Plunkett, they edited it. Mm -hmm. um, there's some really good papers. Um, one's called Non-Naturalistic Realism and Metaethics by David Enoch. And another one is called Naturalistic Realism and Metaethics by Peter Railton. Um, and then if they check out the one on um, Metaethics. Those are both excellent. Yeah, great papers, <laughs> right? And then the papers on constitutivism and constructivism in that in that same book by Michael Smith, Smith, Michael Smith and Melissa Berry in particular, um, give a really good overview of um, sort of the strengths and weaknesses of um, sort of naturalistic moral realism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I should put re realism in scare quotes because although most of those views are staunchly realist, constructivist and constitutivist accounts are sometimes sort of, it's hard to characterize them as just straightforwardly uh, a realist, but it's, it's as realism as you need. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but I think those, I think those are um, in my view, perfectly plausible, intellectually satisfying meta ethical theories of, mm -hmm. of morality sort of um, Mark Schroeder has a book. Uh, he's at USC. He has a book hot off the press called reasons first, which gives sort of a hot topic in meta ethics right now is meta normativity. Like we're interested in moral right and wrong and good and bad, but but what about right and wrong and good and bad in general, um, in terms of you know, epistemic norms as well as uh, moral norms, for example, and practical norms? Um, is there some fundamental notion of normativity that's underlying all these different kinds of normativity? And he gives this sort of uh, uh, sort of metanormative approach, uh, which is kind of I think it falls in in these sort of what's called reasons first buck passing approaches to um, normativity. So the idea is that moral normativity reduces to the normativity of reasons, which is which is the kind of uh, view that um, Ben defended. Right. Um, Similar to Parfit, right? Tim Scanlon, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, Tim Scanlon, Thomas Nagel, Derek Parfit. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That that whole tradition. And so, you know, on this sort of buck passing accounts, like Humean accounts say that, you know, someone has a reason to phi, say, I don't know, tell the truth or tell a lie, if and only if uh, phi satisfies one of their desires, right? And since desire satisfaction is a natural property, the normative reduces to the natural on that kind of a view. Well, you, what do you have most reason to do in terms of satisfying your desires, right? Um, and so um, you can just give an account of morality just reduces to practical reasons in that way. Um, and then there's sort of value first buck passing accounts from people like Philip Afoot and Mike Lott and others who reduce moral normativity to goodness. 
and analyze goodness in terms of flourishing or proper function or health or something. And since flourishing or proper function or health is a natural property, again, normativity reduces to the naturals. So you could have that kind of um, naturalism. I know Scanlon doesn't like to call himself a moral naturalist. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, but they, they're just very much people in that camp that uh, that sort of skirt the line. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, for a constructivist view, you know, I'd recommend people read people like Christine Korsgaard. Um, Sharon Street. I absolutely yeah. love Sharon Street. Sharon death. Street is awesome. <laughs> yeah, like a, a Humean constructivism is totally plausible, too. And the, the bottom line is, even if people don't like, you know, sort of a platonic moral realism mm-hmm. um, or these buck passing accounts or constructivist accounts, people need to know that you know, people that are relativists in meta ethics aren't anything goes relativists. <laughs> they, te- they tend to think that they're just as a matter of fact, at least the way we're built. <laughs> um, there's just certain things that most people aren't going to be, aren't, aren't going to be willing to do. Um, and so certain kinds of things about arbitrary killing and, and stuff like that, um, it's not going to be part of anybody's core interests. So even if you're you know, those are ruled out on practical grounds. Like, just a matter of fact, it, it, it would be sort of, uh, to put it bluntly, a stupid thing to to want is a norm. Because <laughs> then why would you want somebody to kill you, to kill you right? right. Um, um, and so sometimes the, this, this rarely comes out in these sorts of debates as there are relativists out there, um, uh, people like Gil Harmon and, and so forth, but, but they're not anything goes relativists. They're more sophisticated than that. Um, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I'm in print, uh, you know, wondering aloud (laughs) and giving reasons and summarizing reasons that other people have written on Mm -hmm. about theistic accounts of meta ethics, you know, anywhere from Robert Adams, uh, uh, to, um, people like, um, blank, I'm blanking out on his name. Um, Mark, he, he, he is, or was it Georgetown? What's that? Mark Murphy? Yeah, Mark Murphy. Yeah. So from anywhere to a Mark Murphy style, style theistic realism to um, a Robert Adams style modified divine command theorist. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I, I just think they're unmotivated. You know, they have serious problems like, um, um, you know, if, if God didn't exist, then, um, uh, uh, kind, honest, loving, just humans wouldn't be good, <laughs> which is implausible or, yeah. you know, and it's weird that if, if there would be anything of intrinsic value, everything would have extrinsic value to God. Yeah, so it's just that's like, sort of the core be- worry. Exactly. Ben. So that's my, <laughs> I, I share your core worry as well. Yeah, that kind of goes back to what I was saying this earlier. Really like comes the extrinsic out facts. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But this, no, this hardly ever comes out in these debates is according to these t- typically on theistic accounts of metaethics, um, some things are, everything's objectively right or wrong that is right or objectively wrong, but nothing is intrinsically right or wrong. It depends on, you know, God existing and what he happens to prefer or command or whatever. Um, but that seems to be, you know, it seems like rape, for example, is just wrong in itself, right. independently of what God prefers or commands or decrees or whatever. Right. Well, I want to make sure, because this was two big points that Trent brought up, and I want to make sure we give an answer to him. So uh, you guys have given some great resources to look into. Um, 
But Ben, I just want to start with you because he specifically wants to know how do you account for intrinsic value and in, say human equality? And I know we've said a lot here, but I just want to make sure he gets a straightforward answer. Um, I'm sure he's going to watch this. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So what I wanted, what I would want to say is that there are intrinsic features to persons that give us all reasons to care about them. And so I highlighted two in them, two of them in the debate. Mm -hmm. So the first one is the feature that makes us at least moral patients. The idea that we all have the conscious capacity to suffer. So the idea that we can be in intense pain um, and can harm one another. These are relevant feature, morally relevant features about us that make us intrinsically value. People should care about the pain that we and other non-human animals can experience. And so another feature that I referred to that um, I think is morally relevant in that it gives us an intrinsic value is that we are rational animals. We're, we are the kind of animal that can respond to reasons and appreciate reasons in the world. We can recognize things like things we owe to each other, things like um, obligations. We can you know, be held responsible for our acts, we can under, we can appreciate reasons why certain people are blameworthy for certain acts, while others are praiseworthy. So just this ability of having this rationality makes us moral agents. And so that's another feature of our um, intrinsic value. So it's when you have these morally relevant features in something that you have something with intrinsic value. It's something that everyone has reason to care about and respect. And these are all the concepts you need for things like dignity and integrity um, and intrinsic value. And I imagine that would include the, the human equality aspect? Yes. And so, you know, I'd take a line from Henry Sidgwick and, you know, more recently Peter Singer in this idea that the, from the point of view of the universe, or as Tommy Snake would say, the view from nowhere, everyone's intrinsic value counts the same. Mm. No one from the from this impartial point of view, the point of view of the universe, everyone has the same intrinsic value. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Joe, would you have anything to add to that? Do you have like the same kind of view or is your view a little bit different? How would you uh, explain intrinsic value and human equality? Yeah. So, I mean, my view is a little bit different um, and it's very, very tentative um, just because, you know, I work in philosophy, religion and metaphysics, so I don't yeah. really work in ethics, but <laughs> um, I do have, I do have some tentative views here and I'll just very briefly sketch it. Um, sure. So roughly, I think I take a kind of sort of neo-Aristotelian approach to things where um, at the moment I'm a realist about universals and whatnot. So um, I would say we all have um, certain properties in common namely uh, humanity. And so we could construe that as a universal that explains the presence of other universals or what have you or, or whatever. But um, I think we all have something called human nature. So I right. think that there are natures or essences um, like uh, water is essentially H2O and um, gold is essentially atomic number. What is it, 79 or something? Uh, yeah. um, so I think that things are essentially different ways and things are accidentally other ways. Um, I don't like cease to exist when I stand up or something like that. Um, right. I just gain an accidental feature or something like that. So um, I think that there are natures or essences. And so I think that all humans um, share humanity in common, the nature or essence of humanity. And I think that that 
Um, that universal, if we want to construe it that way, there are different ways to construe it. I mean, you can actually cache this in, in nominalist friendly terms as well, but, um, but that gives us certain causal powers by nature. Um, and so importantly, this view of causal powers uh, says that there are certain manifestation conditions for causal powers, right? So like um, whenever you have a causal power for something, it's not as though uh, that could like, the man, th that power could manifest without any respective, irrespective of conditions, right? So if you have a match, right? The match is a power to produce heat, but um, it's not unless you strike it against something that that's gonna happen. It's not just gonna like spontaneously combust or something like that. So um, you need manifestation conditions. And so what I would say is that um, all humans by dint of their human nature have various capacities, like the capacity to uh, reason, to suffer, to love, to give, you know, give themselves in acts of love and, and, and so on. And uh, people at various stages of their development still have these powers. It's just that the manifestation conditions either are frustrated by lack of development or other sorts of things. And so I give a kind of, and so even under my view, um, an infant, for instance, would still be possessed of these powers. It's just, um, it's at an earlier stage of its development. And so it, it doesn't have the, um, the, the manifestation conditions for the relevant powers are, are you know, they're frustrating the manifestation. So that's a long story, a long way to put it that um, I think that it's a kind of intrinsic grounding of um, the intrinsic value of us. I mean, uh, I don't ground it and I don't even know how it would work if you had God. I mean, that's an extrinsic grounding of intrinsic worth. Like what? <laughs> I don't even understand that, but um, sure. setting, setting that aside, but yeah, um, I would just have a universal shared in common by everyone. That universal explains the presence of causal powers. Uh, and it is those causal powers that I think self-evidently um, give us certain intrinsic value. I mean, surely things that can love, that can suffer, that can um, act freely, that are rational and so on. We could just see that, that you know, that obviously that's going to be an intrinsically valuable being. And uh, this delivers for us the um, equal value of everyone, ir irrespective of race, gender, age, and, and, and so on, and uh, in level of development. So um, yeah, anyway, that, that's kind of my view here. Excellent. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, and then Felipe, uh, in terms of your views, would you have even a slightly different view from Ben and Joe, or do you mostly agree with what they've said, or uh, what are your thoughts uh, as far as how a naturalist might, um, and you in particular, might explain intrinsic value and human equality? Um, man, it's, I, I, been teaching ethics for over a decade <laughs> and I've never, I've, my views have changed so much. I've just not settled. The closest I, to settling now is somewhere between like a, between either some sort of reasons first buck passing or, um, mm -hmm. or value first or meta-ethical constructivism mm -hmm. in terms of normative ethics a bunch of different views could fit there, but um, in terms of metaethics, in terms of the ground of normativity, um, I'm I'm sort of somewhere in between constructivist or Kantian constructivist, maybe I don't know, uh, maybe Humean or um, reasons first or value first buck passer. Um, those are sort of like the the least implausible views that I've seen that, that make a, a good bit of a good bit of sense. Yeah. Man, um, I don't know something something similar to probably starting with you know Peter Railton's paper 
moral realism, which is in, in broad outlines, I think basically right. <laughs> uh, so, so something like that. So I guess that's closer to um, Ben's uh, account. But again, I, I don't have any, I don't have anything settled there, but I, I, f- I find those views the most satisfying so far. Okay, great, great. Uh, ben, did you want to say anything? I think we've kind of addressed moral wrongness and uh, obligations to per- persons and all this. So do you want to talk a little bit about, because uh, you had mentioned um, challenging Trent's uh, view of evil, so the privation view of evil. Um, so I think we've probably said enough about the, the other aspects there. So do you want to talk a little bit about the privation view of evil? Um, yeah, so one of my strategies in the debate was to press my argument from imperfection and to obviously raise something like the gap problem to try to undermine both of his cosmological arguments. So if I, you know, poke this hole in the cosmological arguments and hit real hard with this argument from imperfection, he's got to try to overcome this gap problem. Well, how does he try to do that? Well, he tries to do that with the privation um, theory of evil. And so I, I've always seen this as kind of like a tack on, like, you know, classical theists have this like, you know, really robust metaphysics and ontology and, you know, they, they've really worked it out in certain ways, but it seems like ethics is kind of just an afterthought where it's just, oh, well, you know, things like evil are just, you know, ways, you know, things that are lacking. And that if we were just able to add something to the world, these things would be good. Um, because, you know, anything that has substance, form, and being is itself good because God wills it. And so God doesn't will evil. So that kind of seems to be the payoff here as a, you know, a way out of something like an argument from evil. Um, and so I raised at least four objections um, to this view. So the first was that it doesn't actually solve the problem of evil because you still have to explain why God allows privation evils. So you still have a problem of missing good. I also appealed to Hume's is-ought distinction, this idea that, you know, the way the world is, is in a different category of truth than claims like the way the world ought to be. Um, So to use Wilford Sellers here, uh, you know, terms here, you know, um, ought facts are going to be part of the logical space of reasons, whereas, you know, is facts are going to be about the realm of law or the causal world. Um, and so the third objection I raised was called the triviality objection. And so if I had one regret about the debate, um, I had to yield 20 seconds of my four minute second rebuttal just because I, you know, I had said what I wanted to say, but I didn't feel like I had said that enough about the triviality objection. I wish I had to use that 20 seconds, um, or as much of it as I could to, you know, expound on this objection more because the idea that I wanted to say with this is that morality just becomes trivial in this. Anything that has substance, form, or goodness, anything that God wills just becomes good by definition. So when we, when we would say that something is good, all we're saying about it is that it has substance, form, and being. We'd be, and so no one disagrees that this thing exists. We want to know whether or not it's good. We want to know if this thing can help us make better decisions, and it couldn't. It would just state a trivial fact, and so morality would be trivial. And then finally, I think is probably the most um, important objection is that this just isn't a plausible view of evil. Like if like if we're looking for an account of evil, um, this just isn't it. Because when we look at positive things in the world, like pain and depression, these are positive things. 
that like you know the nature of what it's like to be burnt or whipped you know makes me want to not be in those future states what it's like to be depressed doesn't necessarily tell me that there's something's wrong in the world i could be living things could be going right for me in the world and there could just be a chemical imbalance in me that causes depression and so you know there's nothing that we can add to the nature of pain or what it's like to be depressed and make it good it's a po- it has positive existence in the world it's positively evil it's not something that just you know when when you try to understand the evilness of pain and depression you just can't, you it it becomes morally indistinguish- indistinguishable from the blank unconsciousness of an oyster it's just you know the only thing bad about future pain is we're not in it right now because insofar as if we were in it right now god would be willing it for us it would be you know it would have substance form and being and it would be for our good and any future pain we're in is going to be willed for us by god it will be good mm-hmm. and so i gave an agony argument saying look we all have reason to want to avoid future pain and the privation view of evil just says no we don't have any such reason and so i think that's just a reason to think that view is false and so this was again a strategic move on my part i wanted to put a lot of pressure um, on this view because I just think it's a super plausible view and it's, it's his only out that he gave, that he's given in the debate for overcoming this gap problem. Um, other than the moral arguments that I think he gave, which I think I also refuted. (laughs) Uh, Joe, would you say, is this privation view of evil, uh, is that sort of the standard position for a classical theist? So traditionally, yes. So um, it traces back to, well, certainly back to Augustine, um, but probably before him as well. And, you know, Augustine, he came to this because he was reflecting on what's called a metaphysical problem of evil. So essentially, um, you know, Augustine thinks that, well, God as the ground of being is the source of everything that exists apart from himself. But um, surely God cannot you know, create something evil. I mean, uh, that would be really weird. Um, so if God is the source of everything apart from himself and God being perfect can't create evil, well, then evil must not really exist. Uh, but, you know, we look around us and we clearly see evil. And so what he develops is this privation um, account of evil uh, to try to solve this metaphysical uh, problem of evil. And it's taken up by a bunch of different thinkers in the tradition, Aquinas and and so on. So, um yeah. I, so traditionally, yes, this is certainly um, pretty dominant within the classical theistic tradition. You have the convertibility of being and goodness. So the, the doctrine of the convertibility of transcendentals, um, being, unity, goodness, and so on, beauty. So yeah, it's definitely kind of prominent in the tradition. I guess I have a, a number of different reservations, and actually there's just this really good um, uh, presentation by Alexander Proust, and he, it was, just happened this July, I think, and uh, he was outlining the traditional privation theory. He gave a number of quite serious objections to it, and then he developed a sort of similar view to the privation theory, where he talks about misarrangements and other sorts of things, but it's it's still different, distinct from the traditional um, view, and so I find his objections quite plausible. One of them is pain. Um, it's, it's just really difficult to see, and of course, you know, privation theorists aren't, aren't ignorant of this, but pain, it's, there seems to be a positive phenomenological character to that. Um, And that in and of itself seems bad. Um, So pain is certainly one. Another one is um, uh, believing falsehoods. So um, 
you know, surely it's not good uh, to have a false belief, um, at least when it comes to significant, important things. Uh, right. But like, it, it becomes really difficult to anal analyze how that is. Well, like, maybe you're missing a correspondence with the world, but then it's like, well, what about beliefs about negative existentials? It's like, does it have to correspond to some absence of giraffes or something? <laughs> but there are no absences. Or like, you know, uh, so you get into this really weird stuff and you have to talk about, you have to get into token relations and they have to posit token relations. And then um, once you do that, you either have to say that we have like power to bring things about in the past or like, it, it gets insane. But like, um, I do think there are serious problems for that. So I'll just, yeah. No, that's great. Would you add anything else? So you mentioned pain, which is uh, what uh, Ben brought up as well. Um, you uh, mentioned a new one as far as believing false things. Um, do you mostly agree with uh, Ben's strategy there or would you have done anything a little bit differently or what are your thoughts there? Um, let's see, how would have I proposed that? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I probably would have raised uh, these two problems. I would have you know, studied up on Proust and what he wrote there and get into the literature a little bit and um, try to develop that. So I'd, I'd raised those two, those two problems, but then I'm just not sure how much it helps his case. Um, especially with respect to the gap problem, his as in Trent's, especially with respect to the gap problem. I mean, sure, if God's purely actual, then there's no like privation within him that in some sense he ought to have, but he doesn't in fact have. Um, I mean, I, we can grant that, but that's not sufficient for moral goodness. This is a kind of metaphysical goodness as, um, as thinkers within the tradition recognize, right? So like, um, uh, like, uh, let's see, a plant, right? A plant. There's, there's not going to be any moral goodness there, but there are still going to be certain privations like withered leaves and not enough sunlight and so on. So there's a kind of metaphysical badness there uh, and a privation of metaphysical goodness, even though there's no moral goodness and so on. So all, all Trent would be able to get is that this thing is good in the sense that um, the various ends built into its nature are fully realized and so on. But like, that would allow you to say that a perfectly round circle, not, not the ones that we draw on paper and so on, but a perfectly round circle would be fully good because it doesn't have any privations that, that it's failing to realize. And so, I mean, is that fully good? I mean, I guess you could call a, a perfectly round circle good, um, but like, this is not the kind of gap, this is not the gap problem that we want to be solving. We want to get to omnibenevolence. We want to get to moral goodness. And this argument just doesn't get you there. So I don't think it even helps with a gap problem. So I, I ultimately, I agree with, with Ben's um, strategy here. Excellent. And Felipe, uh, what are your thoughts on the privation view of evil? So you mentioned you, you've taught ethics uh, for like 10 years, I believe you said. Um, have you ever addressed this view of evil? Does that kind of idea come up in your classes or uh, what are your general thoughts up, on that? It comes up mainly in, in philosophy of religion courses, but the um, my views just basically echo what's already been said, that there seems sure. to be clear cases, clear paradigm cases of positive evils that can't be reduced to um, a privation account, right. at least at least without some uh, uh, swallowing some hard pills. So I think sure. those are theoretical costs for that sort of account. Um, and uh, I think that sort of uh, theodicy would do, do well to... Um, to accommodate it with with other um, strands of the Odyssey, um, I just I just don't see it as plausible or having wide explanatory scope to explain all the the various panoply of uh, kinds of evils. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, well, that's very good. Uh, let's then uh, go on to the argument from simplicity. 
and and Ben, you you made a case for why you think naturalism has a higher intrinsic probability than theism uh, because it's simpler. And maybe let's unpack that a little bit because you know there's some back and forth between theists and and naturalists on which which is actually simpler and in what sense you know what do we even mean by simpler and what what makes something simple or not. Uh, so so maybe you just want to give us a sense of your idea there. Yeah, so um, I wanted to include this argument because um, my main argument was going to be the argument from imperfection. Mm -hmm. And that in one of the ways that I was going to cash that out was using a Bayesian um, inference. Now, if I'm going to say use a Bayesian inference, I have to say something about a prior probability somewhere. Now, even if I wasn't making this Bayesian inference, I still think it's an important argument. Um, and so I think it can be a bit misleading by saying, I probably shouldn't call it the argument from simplicity. What I'm trying to argue here is that um, theism has a low prior probability. And so why am I saying that? I want to, I want to say this because I think that what's built into most theistic hypotheses are many immodest claims. And that these many uh, immodest claims don't coherently fit well together. And so um, I took this line from Paul Draper. Um, and so the idea here is, is that um, there must be some sort of way to objectively evaluate um, prior probabilities. So he uses the example of a race. He says, you know, two people start the race at the same time and they run exactly as fast, but someone wins the race. Well, that can only be the case if one of them started out ahead. And so this, he uses that to illustrate this idea that, look, you know, if two hypotheses have the exact same explanatory power, but one of them explains the day, but, you know, we should prefer one uh, hypothesis to the other, then it must be because one of them is simpler than the other. And so I wanted to cash that out in terms of modesty and coherence and give a a dilemma for the classical theist by saying that, look, if, you know, if you back off the, you know, if you back off from claims of like Christian theism and just go to bare theism, if you, the more modest um, you are, the more problems of coherency you have. And that if you try to solve these problems of coherence, the only way you can do that is at the price of immodesty. Um, and so that, you know, either way, the prior probability of theism is low. Would you say that classical theism in particular is has a pretty low probability uh, as compared to just general theism? So uh, I would argue so, yes, because I feel like it comes it comes with just more claims. It comes for more way, more tensions to come arise in it. Um, I tried to outline some of those tensions with various forms of modal collapse with yeah. by pointing out that the you know, doctrine of analogy, this idea that we can't really, um, you know, say what we want to say about God in any, you know, the, the pieces just don't coherently fit well together. I think that all of these commitments that the classical theist has a priori just count against the prior probability of the hypothesis. Now, in line with that, Trent made the claim that you know, he, he kind of concedes, yeah, maybe naturalism is more modest, but theism seems to actually be more coherent. How would you like to respond to that? 
<laughs> so I just deny that. So I just say, you know, notorious you know, theism, especially classical theism in particular, is notorious for having problems of coherency. Sure. Um, you know, theism wants to say that God is infinite and unbounded, but is also separate from his creation. You know, this is, there's all kinds of just problems of coherency that, that naturalism just doesn't face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also trivially obvious that, you know, monism is simpler than dualism. Like, you know, if, if I'm working with an ontological monism and theism implies an ontological dualism, sure. that's just, you know, already you, you're winning the modesty race mm-hmm. there. Um, he also objected that, you know, theism had a prior probability of one, which I thought was kind of a fun. I was like, okay, well, <laughs> that's um, confusing metaphysical, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the probability of an epistemic probability, you know, this, this, we're, we're <laughs> um, you, it's not good. You're not going to be able to avoid my argument by just saying, well, well, God, if he does exist, exists in all possible worlds. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that um, works. And I th- also think he tried to challenge the simplicity of naturalism by saying that the definition was circular, yes, which yeah. I thought was kind of strange since I gave a, de- a, a conception of naturalism, mm-hmm. the you know idea that causal reality is causally closed. Right. Um, you know that didn't use the term naturalism, and then he put Draper's definition of you know the mental explaining the physical or the physical explaining the mental a non-circular definition you put that on the table and I, you know so for me i was like i don't i don't under, I, I realize that naturalism is a difficult concept to characterize and people characterize it differently but i didn't see any problem with the the concept i put on the table and i didn't see any problem with the concept he put on the table so it was hard to see what the objection was there yeah. Um, to my argument from simplicity. Yeah. Uh, in a moment, Felipe, I want to ask you about actually that definition, because actually from what you've written in your book with uh, Josh uh, Rasmussen, uh, but before we get to that, uh, Joe, you were kind of nodding your head there. What are your thoughts on this? Um, the idea of bringing probability into this, um, some people complain that, you know, it's very difficult to try to come up with probabilities or prior probabilities for these things. Do you think that's um, a worthwhile uh, path to go down or uh, um, can so, we get anywhere with that? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> yes, insofar as, you know, this is a problem and, you know, the problem of the priors and, and so on that's being explored, but no, in the sense that this is a problem for like all Bayesian reasoning in every field, there's nothing distinctive to, um, philosophy of religion here. Uh, if it's a problem, it's a problem for like all Bayesian reasoning. And you certainly don't want to throw that out um, altogether. So uh, that's one thing that I'll say. So I don't really think it's a distinctive problem in this dialectical context. We can kind of set it aside. And usually what matters is that you have um, likely, you know, what matters usually is the likelihood ratios. I mean, if, if, if you're giving an argument from evil say, and naturalism trumps theism by many orders of magnitude um, on the likelihood ratio, you know, predicting the data, 
Um, well, then at, at a certain point when you build up, when you amass data, um, the priors kind of just go out. You would have to be like absurdly certain that uh, a given view is, is, is false um, given certain evidence. But anyway, so I think we can kind of bracket off considerations of, of priors, but um, not always because Ben, you know, pointed out that if you can show that the likelihood it's, it might be roughly similar, you know, weighing up all the evidence, well, then you can focus on the priors. And that's where, you know, the, the Draper kind of uh, argument comes in. So, um, yeah, I think that there are certain objective constraints. So, um, you know, uh, clearly if there is no strict contradiction uh, contained within a hypothesis or strict entailed by it, um, well, then arguably you shouldn't assign it a probability of zero uh, if there's no such contradiction. Uh, I think, moreover, that we can focus on how many claims something says, how many claims it makes about the world. And mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's just a fact that the more claims you make, in principle, epistemically speaking, the more ways you have of being wrong. And so the less probable you are. We can also talk about symmetries. Um, so uh, Paul Draper talks about the symmetry between the mental precedes the physical and explains the physical. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the physical precedes the mental and explains the mental. There's a kind of symmetry there such that I think we could just see that a priori it would be utterly in, like ad hoc and arbitrary to just make one more intrinsically probable than the other. Uh, there's a perfect symmetry there, it seems. And so once we get that, well, then we can compare views that are only proper subsets of those. And if one is a, a small subset of um, the whole family of views, well, then we know that it's going to be less intrinsically probable uh, compared to um, one that, say, occupies a greater space of the, the views on the other side. Now, I know I've kind of touched on prior and intrinsic probability. There's a, there's a crucial and important distinction there. Um, uh, and so I just, I wanted to um, highlight that, but we don't really need to, to pursue that in depth. Prior probability is just prior to looking at a given piece of evidence. Intrinsic probability, um, you're looking at the hypothesis itself. You're looking at its modesty, its coherence. Um, so yeah, there, there is a distinction there for the audience. So don't think I'm running roughshod over that. Yeah, no, and, and would you say that you agree that classical theism sort of suffers in those regards and modesty and in those ways? Well, certainly compared to perfect being theism, because it adds those four core theses, um, which makes more claims about the world. Uh, and so that's going to lower its probability. Um, and moreover, it opens up opportunities for more tensions to arise. That's not even saying that tensions will in fact arise or do in fact arise. Remember, for the audience, we're thinking of epistemic possibility, and, or excuse me, epistemic probabilities here. And right. so... Um, all that matters is that you're making more claims about the world, and hence, in principle, epistemically speaking, you have more ways of being wrong prior to looking at the world itself. And so that's a matter of um, uh, your, your modesty of your hypothesis. Um, and of course, coherence ties in with that because you can have certain tensions arising. But anyway, um, yeah, certainly compared with perfect being theism, it's, it's uh, less intrinsically probable. Um, so yeah. And would you agree that, uh, do you think naturalism really does have quite a bit of an edge here? in terms of its intrinsic probability? I would say it depends on the definition of naturalism. I've seen okay, so perfect. many different yeah. definitions. Yeah. Good. So honestly, I can't answer that, sorry. Okay, no, that's perfect, because uh, that brings us to what uh, Ben had mentioned is in terms of Trent's sort of uh, pushback against the definition of uh, a naturalism. And real quick, this before I forget, because Felipe, in your book with Josh, um, you kind of mentioned, so the, there was the idea of whether the mental precedes the physical or vice versa. But what I got from your book was sort of that a naturalist could even, uh, could even go the other way as say, yeah, maybe there is some, I think you called it um, proto-mental, uh, if I remember correctly in your book. Um, 
so some kind of proto uh, mental properties. Yeah, so proto-phenomenal properties or yeah. proto-representational properties. Yeah, sort of like a pan-protopsychism. Yeah. That's interesting. Your line of thinking that you mentioned was exactly what I was thinking as you guys were talking. It's sort of like um, this chicken-egg problem um, of what came first, the mental or the physical. Right. And it's sort of, well, both came first because yeah. you there is the hypothesis that they're both together, right? That, again... Mm -hmm. Um, my spinozistic leanings <laughs> tend to tend to say, well, why don't you just say that there's one stuff and it has both physical and proto-mental or proto-phenomenal states at its neutral monism for the win. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Big props. So, so yeah, I think I think that's another hypothesis you need to need to consider as well. Um, I think Draper does Draper mention that. Anywhere I'm thinking of the oh, SCP yes. entry, I can't think of it. Okay, well, yeah. from my familiarity with, with his work, what he does is um, when he's talking about supernatural versus naturalism and theism versus naturalism, he basically just starts off with saying, "Listen, he know he recognizes that he's doing an assumption, but um, or he's making an assumption, but he's just going to assume that there is a physical world, there is a mental world. These things are distinct." Um, and we have to ask about the relationship between them and where the explanatory relation goes. So he does kind of make an assumption there. And in, in his later work, he explores, like, I think he has panpsychotheism, like he explores that in a paper and other sorts of things. But yeah. I, I distinctly recall reading one of his papers or articles where he's like, listen, uh, this is, seems like just an ordinary starting point, common sense. Um, there's the physical realm, there's the mental realm, these things are distinct. Now let's ask about their explanatory relation. So he kind of does that. Mm. That's right. Thanks for jogging my memory. There's that paper. He has a, it's like a chapter in like current controversies in philosophy of religion. Or yeah, something I think like that's, that. I think that's what the I'm pan, remembering. Panpsychotheism. That's a great paper. <laughs> uh, uh, definitely uh, eye-catching title. Uh, and uh, as usual, a fun, fun paper. His, his fun personality comes, shines through it. But yeah, that would be, that would be my, my kind of proposal. And I tend to think, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with Draper and with Ben to think that, yeah, this, the um, naturalism is going to, depending on your, again, depending on your characterization of naturalism, say, say for example, this sort of spinozistic panpartopsychist view, sort of priority cosmopsychism, I think, as uh, Yuji Nagasawa calls it. Um, I, th I think it's going to win this sort of uh, race. Um, I mean, one thing, of course, that I would mention is I think that um, uh, theism isn't going to win out in coherence because I think it's incoherent. I think that if it because it has built within it the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, and I think that's uh, prima facie impossible. Okay. Um, that's going to be it's going to be problematic. I'm, I guess I just don't see. Again, this, when I was watching the debate, it occurred to me that perhaps Trent had, I, I know that he, in fairness to Trent, he um, he questioned, you know, he, he was asking Ben, well, what do you mean by naturalism? But perhaps in the back of his mind, he thought something, uh, Trent had something in mind with something like materialism or something like that. And, um, and of course, that's no necessary commitment to being a naturalist. Um, although there are people and there are plenty of people in that camp, um, you know, uh, uh, Spinoza himself took himself to be, seemed to take himself as a naturalism by saying God or nature <laughs> as, as two different 
sides of the same coin. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, um, yeah, I would question the coherence there. And, and I would throw in, of course, the hypothesis of um, some sort of naturalistic view that's, that has both some quasi-mental and uh, material attributes as part of its essence as one of the competing naturalistic hypotheses in this race. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was Chalmers sort of the first one to come up with that idea? Because I believe he has that kind of view, right? Where like uh, posits that um, there's just this right. these other this other set of properties that belong to the physical world. You that... can probably find it in the pre-Socratics. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. He's not yeah, the it's... first, but he's definitely the most popular defender. Okay, Property yeah. dualism. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, you might even say, you know, uh, perhaps even Heraclitus and Thales were, yeah. <laughs> were uh, something like this. But yeah, um, yeah. I think you're right. I think he... It's sometimes he calls it resilient monism, hunting to wrestle in his works like what the analysis of matter, the analysis of mind way back. Yeah. Uh, and before that, you know, there's Spinoza. Yeah. Um, but uh, and what uh, anomalous monism and th there's different versions like, well, maybe it's neither physical nor mental, but the physical and mental arise from it. You know, yeah. so there's there's variations on this. Um, but yeah, it's been around for ages. Yeah, um, in some form or another. But you're right. Uh, uh, Chalmers um, is sort of like the canonical yeah. uh, late 20th century uh, text, the conscious mind, to bring it back to the fore again. Right, right. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. It seems to me that Ben's definition, uh, you know, working definition in the debate, was maybe the better way to go, given that we want naturalism here to fit within a subset of non-theism, right? Because it's that's the whole idea is being opposed to theism here. Yeah. And it seems to me that the Draper view, a naturalist could accept mind first in a, some sense, like we've been talking about. Uh, yeah. Does that sound right? Uh, that maybe Ben's view was the more appropriate one? I, this could go for I anyone. think I didn't. Go ahead. I, I did at least for my own part, I think I kind of missed part of the question. Oh, so I was just, you know, since Trent was pushing back on Ben's definition and brought up the Draper idea of, you know, he explains it as the mental preceding the physical or vice versa, uh, you know, that, that naturalism is the physical preceding the mental. Uh, it seems to me that maybe that wouldn't be the most appropriate definition for a debate like this, given that a naturalist could, uh, as we were talking about, uh, take a, some something like a maybe mental first or what you were talking about proto-mental position. Uh, so it seems to me that Ben's definition of just talking about the causal closure might have been the more helpful definition in this just in this debate. Does that sound right or? Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's so hard again to to characterize. I actually don't think anyone succeeded in characterizing naturalism. Yeah. I like to I like to just look at specific proposals. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot gets too much too much time gets spent on what naturalism is. Yeah. And just say, hey, here's a view. Yeah. <laughs> and let me let me flesh it out and then let's see which data it explains. And that's let's modify it whenever there's a piece of data that seems like we have to shoehorn it into our uh into and, so that, and so that's what I tried to um definitely emphasize in 
my most important argument the argument from imperfection because I was saying that naturalism implied the hypothesis of hypothesis of indifference so that hypothesis was doing a lot of work for me so we could actually shelve the concept of naturalism and focus with just the hypothesis of, of indifference if we wanted to and so yeah. what I really wanted to do with the argument from imperfection is to you know kind of tie the rational knot that is the problem of evil yeah. um, and give and tie also the argument from divine hiddenness into it as one of those imperfections um, to give four unique ways of cashing out um, the premise that there are imperfections in the world such that the world is, you know, on the whole imperfect in a way that's just incompatible with a perfect being. Uh yeah. Ben, your your definition seems to me to be much closer to uh Graham Oppie's definition that he gives in um Sure. Yeah, I think it's naturalism and religion, I think, is where he uh sets out. Sound, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I'd have to someone in the comments will correct us if we're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um excellent. So how how are we doing on time? Felipe, are you good? I know Joe, you said you have to head out in a little bit and uh we are super grateful for the amount of time you've given us so far. Felipe, how are you doing? Uh, do you have a certain amount of time you have? Actually, I'm running over a little bit. I have to tuck in the rugrats, but oh, yeah. <laughs> the Absolutely. munchkins, but um, okay. yeah. yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, we could probably go because the only thing, you know, I've mentioned the argument for perfection. Um, Joe's written a ton. So my, there was my argument from freedom. Yeah. And so I've, it's kind of a modified modal collapse though. I don't, wed myself to motor class i tried to um add god's intentions into it you know the idea that god being perfectly free entails that he intentionally could do otherwise um and how that was just that was a problem of coherence um you've published some recent work on modal collapse is it, uh, joe do you want to uh, say something real quick before we close it out yeah so um i have two Papers. One of them is a kind of knowledge-based modal collapse argument. Uh, that one is called the aloneness argument against classical theism. That's just the title of the paper, and that one's co-authored with uh, Ryan Mol Dr. Ryan Moles. And then the second paper, um, and this was a really fun one to write. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I enjoyed it so much because I was slightly polemical in it. Because anyway, uh, but uh, it's called the fruitful death of modal collapse arguments. So I look at different <laughs> modal collapse arguments based on the identity of God and God's acts, as well as God's being purely actual. And I argue that um, the uh, classical theists can avoid modal collapse um, with respect to those arguments. Uh, I'm not talking about knowledge-based modal collapse arguments. I myself have defended one. Um, but with respect to those kinds of modal collapse arguments, classical theists can avoid them if and only if they accept an indeterministic causal link between God and creation. And then I kind of just explore that and uh, look at potential problems that might arise from that. I just wanted to advance the debate. But uh, so people can check that out. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that's the main thing that I, I'll say. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, Felipe, then again, we really appreciate your time. Is there anything you'd like to any last things you'd like to comment on as far as um, the debate? Close goes? us out, Felipe. Yeah, close us out here. Uh, I, I think Ben should have the last word. He did such a great debate. Oh. I, I really appreciated your work, Ben, and also bringing sort of contemporary um, sort of cutting edge arguments into the discussion and, be, and your methodological approach of, hey, I need something that's sort of empirically informed and isn't purely a priori. 
Um, not, not that um, armchair philosophy is is necessarily bad or anything. There's lots of good in it, but surely there's a lot to be said with empirically informed uh, 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 philosophy of religion as well. And um, and so I, I, I appreciated that in your discussion. Um, but um, I would, man, I I still want to think more about this. I don't have time to do it right now, sadly, but I want to think more about this argument from uh, from freedom. Is there any way I could get, do you have like a paper that you? Um, it's, yes. Yeah. So there's a, a, a paper that I'm kind of working on and putting together and I, I'll certainly send it to you. In, it, in between us, yeah, I, I, I found your, the exchange between you and Trent I think you had the upper hand in that. I don't think that, especially as a Thomist, aren't to Thomists sort of compatibilists about freedom and determinism? It varies. It varies. <laughs> yeah, it, and so it's one of the things I wanted to try to pin him down on, but it, it, we just, you know, we, we can't respond to everything. It's just too much. Yeah. But Felipe, I'll also send you my paper because I, I actually addressed that argument in my paper. So um. Sweet. Yeah, send it along. I would love to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super excited. Yeah, this modal collapse stuff in general, I, I'm super excited about. Mike, I, I don't have a paper on it or anything, but l I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to say um, modal collapse is awesome because <laughs> um, if, you, if you think that, it, I guess I should, I should clarify, modal collapse with respect to, for example, um, well, yeah, let's just stick with theism and modal collapse. Um, hey, you know, um, all possible worlds going to reduce to one possible world. Bummer. I'm like, no, um, if God... Modal can, simplicity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to think maybe there is only one possible world, or given the good Everettian that I am, that necessarily all possible worlds exist. Yeah. So the modal collapse turns it, God would necessarily will all possible worlds if he, if he wills one of them, because you can't, by the nature of physical reality, you can't create one world all by itself. You have to create all of them. It's Go just Everett. one branch of the wave function. Yeah. And so, um, um, there's one world in a sense, but in another sense, um, Every world is actual and necessarily actual, or something like that. I'm happy to meet another anyway. uh, fellow Everettian. All right. Yes. <laughs> up in this, uh, up in the spot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, on on that goofy note, I better let you guys go. I I can hear um, the kids, so I better put them down. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for your time uh, and joining us, both of you. Uh, this has been a fantastic experience. So. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, likewise. It's yes, cool. it's an honor to have you all on. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I hope we can do it yeah, again. Likewise, it's an honor to be on. So, yeah, uh, well, thanks so much, and I uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. All right, have a good night. You too. I'm gonna head out as well, guys. Thank you much, so much for this, and see ya. Th right. Yeah, thank you, thank you again for agreeing to do this and coming. I I really can't wait till we do it again. Um, I it's sorry it's taking so long to. Have you on the show? I don't know. I don't really have an excuse. No, um, <laughs> it's all good, dude. I've, so, even got a, I've even got a response to Trent coming out tomorrow. So, um, oh, nice. Very exciting. So, also I'm going to try to do a response video of my own. Uh, you know, there was a lot of pushback on the idea of a perfect world. So, I'm going to try to 
um, un do a whole video to unpack that as well. Oh, damn, nice, nice. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll send you the video once it comes out, and I'll be sure to send both you and Felipe my paper. So, um, awesome. Peace. Thanks, buddy. Bye. See ya. All right, guys. Y'all be safe. If you enjoyed this interview and more broadly enjoy content of this kind, please subscribe to our channel to see more interviews and other interesting philosophical content. Do philosophy with us by sharing your thoughts in the comments below. We'd also love to get your feedback and any suggestions for future videos. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to help us continue to provide quality atheological content, Please consider becoming a patron of Real Atheology and contributing even just a dollar per video. Sharing our content on social media is also a great way to help us out. The Real Atheology team appreciates its current patrons with a special thanks to Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kim Pachkowski, Jason, Kashi Samarawira, and Brandon McCleary. Again, thanks for joining us, and until next time.